This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 455 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Rich Graham. Now, Rich is a former Navy SEAL and is the founder of Full Spectrum Warrior. And he invited me onto his ranch, and this was over a three-hour conversation. And we discussed a host of topics, from his journey into the military, hunting war criminals around Europe, his transition story, the genesis of Full Spectrum Warrior, and so many more topics. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find it. And this is a free library of well over 450 episodes now. So all I ask is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Rich Graham. Enjoy. Rich, I want to start by saying thank you for welcoming to your home. It is beautiful, and I now know why it's called Deep Woods Ranch. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's, um, uh, I'm honored to be on your podcast, and yeah, I, when people come out here and I give them the directions, I'm like, okay, when you pull off the asphalt road and you're driving through the woods and you start thinking to yourself, I should probably turn around. This can't be right. Keep going like another mile or two. You know, and uh, yeah, it's called Deep Woods for a reason. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was actually impressed. My little Nissan Sentra did pretty well. It was kind of like a roller coaster ride coming down here, but. <laughs> yeah, the road's horrible. <laughs> yeah, but it was good though. I mean, you know, this, this is, like you said, you're here for a reason. But um, so I want to say thank you to Jason Liska, who connected us, fellow firefighters, the people out there listening. He's the man behind um, the Can Man. Um, and also, funny enough, um, Jason Bitzer, who I just found out you guys know each other too through preparing for his interview. So, um, for people listening first, I mean, I don't have to say exactly, but geographically, where are we sitting? 
right now we are in the bottom east corner of the Ocala National Forest, which is in Florida. Beautiful, beautiful, which is the opposite side of where I live. I'm on the southwest side. So yep. awesome. Um, so I like to start chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, so I was born in New Jersey. I grew up in a beach town in central New Jersey. And uh, with that, I had uh, two brothers or half brothers. And my mom worked for my grandfather's store. He had a, a very large wholesale florist business that used to be a thing before Lowe's and ShopRite and Home Depot were selling flowers and baskets and all that. So when he started that back in the day, that was uh, like a, he kind of had a niche on that industry up in the tri-state area. A lot of our family members worked for that business. My dad was an architect, he actually still is in practice. And then my mom had been married um, and her husband died of a heart condition when he was about 30 years old. And she had my two brothers with with him. and uh, And then later on, she married my father, had me, so that I have two siblings, but they're two brothers, but the the age gap is like 10, 11 years apart. Right. Now, with her losing her previous husband to a heart condition, did that carry over to any sort of message to you when you were younger about nutrition, about fitness, or was it a complete anomaly and didn't kind of relate? Um, that didn't really necessarily relate. He had a heart condition and... When he was a teenager, they had told him that, you know, he'd be lucky to live to 28. And they were almost spot on. He literally lived to like, I think he died at 29, 31 years old or right around there. And, um, and yeah, so that was one of those things that they, I, I forget exactly what the condition was, but, uh, but they had seen it coming and, uh, it didn't really necessarily raise an awareness of um, health necessarily, but more of a family dynamic. There was a interesting dynamic in the home because it was like my two half brothers were very angry that their father died. And it was they were angry, confused. You know, they were eight years old and six years old, and very defiant. Uh, young men when they're when they're teenagers and everything so when my dad came in the picture there was a lot of like resentment and and push away to that and then you know i was their brother but i was always in this awkward spot because it was like my dad was obviously my father these guys were my brothers you know and then there was always this uh this battle back and forth that i would find myself in between you know, in the, in the home. Interesting. So with, with that, you ended up, you know, obviously functioning at a very high level physically. What kind of sports and athletics were you into in school age? Growing up until, until high school, I was in, in grammar school. I was big into basketball it was probably my favorite sport. I played soccer in the spring, basketball in the winter, baseball in the, no opposite soccer in the fall basketball winter and then baseball in the spring. And I, and I do that, um, all the way up until I got into high school, high school, by that point I'd start getting into, uh, BMX biking and I used to do a lot of like freestyle riding, race BMX 
And uh, from eighth grade going into the freshman year of high school, I found Thai boxing. And then I got really big into Thai boxing all through high school, basically stopped playing the other sports except for lacrosse. I found lacrosse my sophomore year of high school. So come high school, it was basically riding bikes, Thai boxing, and lacrosse in the uh, in the spring. See, it's interesting because I have this come up a lot where people that are in you know the responder professions, military professions, the dynamic or the different experience between the team sport where you know you're obviously leaning on each other but then the ownership that you learn from the individual sport like muay thai yeah. where you're in that ring it doesn't yeah. matter what any of your team are doing because you're the one with the gloves on you know yep and the same thing with with the mountain biking street riding all the kind of the, the cycling stuff it's it's a individual sport and you're you're in competition with the with the earth i guess you know um but then also yourself like that's your opponent is yourself and and the terrain or whatever the obstacle is you know in front of you now what about um career aspirations um you know obviously i know you ended up in the seals and that wasn't a direct route initially so what were you thinking of becoming when you were in the high school age and high school is kind of one of those things where I think it was in the same position a lot of high school kids are in, where you go see a guidance counselor your freshman or sophomore year, and they're like, well, what do you want to do? You're like, I don't know. I'm 16 years old. How the hell am I supposed to know what I want to do with my life? You know what I mean? So they basically looked at it like, hey, you know, you're good at art. You're good at math. Language was my definitely not my strong suit. You know, I, I don't learn well through... Uh, hearing things I learn well through seeing them and then I can I can repeat them or replicate them so language was always hard for me but mathematics and uh, anything like hands-on was was natural for me so I was starting to take uh, different art classes and then I was taking college level advanced placement classes for art and the guidance counselors were like well your dad's an architect you're good at math you're doing advanced placement art classes instead of language classes, why don't you look at the route of being an architect? So it was, it was just one of those things where like, okay, I guess I'm going to be an architect. And then I spoke with my dad about it. And my family was like, that's a great idea. You can take over the family business. Uh, I'm a th- I'm the third. So to, to jump in business, the name's the same besides a little thing at the end, you know what I mean? Um, and it was looking like it was going to be a really smooth transition, but I just had way too much energy and, uh, you know, the more I thought about it and the closer I got to going to school. And as I looked at what it actually took to be an architect, it's a five-year college. And then you have to go work for an architect for another three years to then, so you get a degree, then you have to go work for an architect for a minimum of three years to then take a license, to take your test for your license. So it's an eight-year program to get your license to be an architect at a minimum. And, um, I had scholarships and, and, uh, to a couple different schools, um, a couple different universities that we we're looking at. And I just, I've read at the last minute. I just kind of got cold feet. You know, I was dating a girl at the time and, uh, and the colleges or the universities I was looking at, they weren't in States or places that I really wanted to be. It was more of me making a decision. You know, my parents wanted me to be close, obviously, and then my girlfriend was uh, 
uh, two grades behind me and she didn't want me going across the country, you know, so everyone was kind of like trying to root for me to stay close to home. And then she winds up cheating on me and my decisions, the, my decisions weren't a knee jerk reaction as like a protest to, Oh, well, she's my girlfriend cheated on me. I'm going to go leave for the Navy. It was my girlfriend cheated on me and I was sitting there I'm like, dude, I almost just chose the university I was going to go to for five freaking years due to like the influence of my girlfriend and what everyone is saying to me. And then I started thinking, I'm like, I didn't even choose this. I walked into an office at 16 years old, not knowing what the hell I wanted to do. And they said, hey, you should probably just do this. And everyone's like, yeah, that's a good idea. And I was taking all this input from everyone else and making all like lining everything up based on what everyone thought I should be doing. And then it just kind of like hit me, you know, when, when that happened, I was like, you know what, what is it that I actually want to do? And, um, and I was intrigued by this, this, uh, I didn't know much about it cause this is pre nine 11. So there wasn't all the books and the movies and everything about the seal teams at the time. And I just heard there was these guys that were, these commandos that were part of the U S military that were doing top secret stuff down in South America, battling the drug cartels and everything it was, they were talking about seal team four at the time. And I was like, how do I do that? What is, what is this? And, and, um, I had limited information and then that's where I just made the decision where I was like, you know what? I want to go, whatever that is, that's what I want to do. And then I told my parents about it and they thought I was kidding and they're like, this is asinine. You have never once, because right now, like, it's like the final year of high school. I have to start making decisions on on which university and signing contracts and all that stuff for the scholarships. And uh, I was like, you know what? I- I'm going to go join the military. And I didn't come from a big military family, whereas, like, my parents weren't in the military or anything like that. I wasn't like my brothers were. So this was totally out of left field. And... um they had no idea what Navy SEALs were. And I, I really didn't know what a Navy SEAL was either, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was kind of, I made that decision and went to start the process of dealing with the recruiters and all that. That's a whole nother issue. But like, but that was, that was kind of what led me up to that point. All right. Well, I want to get to the recruiter story in a second because I've heard so many different versions, you know, of, of you know, individual experiences. And it's funny because I think Pat McNamara's is still the best. Um, just before we move forward, you mentioned on the dynamic between you and your your brothers. Um, we're going to get into mental health as we start progressing towards, yeah. you know, the, the end of your career. Um, but the common denominator that I've seen over and over again, all these guests from all walks of life is the contributing factor of childhood trauma on top of what we see and do once we put on a uniform. So when you look back, do you, did, do you see any uh, elements that contributed to you personally in your childhood or do you think overall yours was pretty good? Yeah, it's a, it was an interesting dynamic because like I was saying, I was very loved, but there was also, and we didn't come from a poor family, you know what I mean? Um, but there was just this, there was this, this underlying chaos in the home between, uh, my brothers and, and my father. And then from my, between my father and my mother, essentially, because it was one of those things where it was like my, 
my mom felt bad that my two brothers didn't have their father. So there was a lot of things that they would get away with that they shouldn't have got away with because she felt bad that to to really lay down the law on them. You know what I mean? Then my dad would be like, hey, we can't let this go unchecked. We have to do something. And at that time, it would then turn into, well, those are my sons. I'll deal with it. You know what I mean? So when... When that would happen, it would almost be like if if my my dad said something against my brothers, that there was favoritism of me because I was his son and those were her sons kind of thing. Um, and I don't think my dad ever actually tried to put it that way as far as uh, like d- making that differentiation between that as much as it was, look, if I'm here... And I'm in a, you know, I'm in the father role, you know, and I have to live with these guys and I have to help pay for them and raise them and all that stuff. You know, like I need to have a say in this because otherwise there, there's a huge, there's going to be an issue. So there was a lot of pushback from my brothers and, um, and they got in a lot of trouble growing up. They did a lot of, and, and I did a lot of stupid stuff too, but like, so there was a lot of crazy stories, like you could have had a reality TV show on the stuff that would happen in our house and, and the stuff my brothers would do and, and all that. But, um, but so there, it was always this weird dynamic because I would find myself in the middle trying to be like the mediator as, as a, as a little kid or like trying to resolve and deescalate the conflict because both, both parties were people that I cared about. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I do because I'm I'm remarried, and so I have a stepson who has a dad. You know, so yeah. it's not like he lost his dad. Um, you know, and then I my son's mother is with a a bloke now. So it is it's it's a very it's a very toxic environment that we yeah. have to constantly keep checking, and we have to be cognizant of the fact that the kids understand everything that's going on, and they hear every argument, and they feel that tension when it's like you said, when it's unfair one way or the other or whatever it is, and I, I think. It's it's fascinating to me because some people's childhood trauma stories are horrific, you know, yeah. sexual, you know, all kinds of things. And some are so seemingly more benign, but it doesn't matter. Each of these influence us at that age and they form us. And if we process it healthily, then it becomes just another element of forging resilience. But if it gets pushed down and never addressed, it's another chink in the armor. Yeah. And so... When you look at it from the aspect where I was saying, you know, I came from a a family where I was loved by my parents and I have a good relationship with my brothers now. And I had kind of a, I had a, a, a quasi good relationship with them when it was growing up, but there was like, because of the age difference, I was always the rag doll. You know what I mean? And, you know, when there was parties, like they were in high school, I'm 10 years younger. So like when they're 17, having like parties, high school age, I'm six, seven years old. And then next thing you know, everyone's drunk. And then I'm like the butt of the jokes of, of the party, you know, and, uh, there was things like that, that would be, you know, the, a bunch of crazy high school kids, you know, in the, in the eighties. So, which is probably scary for you at seven years old too, watching you know 
grown-ups basically that are intoxicated because I, mean, I had an incident re recently a friend of mine came over great guy got pretty drunk and even at 13 years old it kind of freaked my son out a little bit yeah yeah so there'd be stuff there's all sorts of crazy things that would happen you know i could rattle off 50 freaking stories you know of at these parties where as a little kid you want to hang out with your older brothers you know as a little as a young boy like you want to be around all like the older people and hang out and, but then all of a sudden it, things would just switch and it would go from you know everything was fun to to them it turned into funny and the next thing you know like i'm getting grabbed by all these people and thrown in the dryer and they're placing like beer drinking bets on how long how long does it take rich to be locked in the dryer before he freaks out you know what i mean or you know uh there was one time I got taped to a chair in the middle of a party and they took the fish out of the fish tank and they put all my fish in shot glasses and everyone was like taking shots and swallowing my fish. And like, as a little kid, I was like freaking out. You know what I mean? Um, one time I was hanging out with my brothers at the beach and, uh, and it was like, I was like, Oh dude, it's cool. I get to hang out with my brothers. And the next thing you know, my one brother, uh, hangs me off the volleyball net by my shorts in the middle of the beach in front of like hundreds and hundreds of people at the Jersey shore. So I'm hanging there by my shorts and it's like five minutes goes by, 10 minutes goes by. You think someone would get me off the freaking volleyball net. Okay. It was funny. You guys gave me a wedgie. I'm hanging here. I got hung there. It was probably like 15 minutes and then my shorts ripped and then my shorts got ripped off. And now I'm a little kid standing on the beach, like naked. You know what I mean? And luckily some girl, some lady came over and handed me a towel you know what I mean? So there was there was a lot of those kind of things that happened, um, you know, that you just like you'd build up like that resilience to uh, to the there was like physical and mental abuse. But again, I was saying like it's an interesting dynamic because you'd come home. My parents were super loving. This is all the shit that would happen like behind the scenes. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, it was just, it was just that kind of, just that kind of stuff, you know, and it was, you know, you would never cry. You'd never be able to tell. Cause if you told or cried, like you'd get in more trouble when, when the parents weren't around and stuff like that, you know? So it was, I remember times where it was, I literally needed to go to the hospital for falling or something like that. And like the police had brought me home one day and, uh, and my brother had answered the door and he's like, oh man, that's horrible. Yeah, I'll take him to the hospital. And then it was like, the door shuts. He's like, all right, you got two options. You can be a little bitch like your bro other brother. Because my one brother was like good looking and he's like the pretty boy kind of dude and got all the girls. He's like, you can be a little bitch like your brother, you know, and his name. And he's like, or you can be a man about it and handle it the manly way. And I'm like okay, that's obviously, there's only one right answer to this. You know? <laughs> this, is, this is a loaded question. <laughs> okay, I'll do the manly way. I'm not going to be a bitch. He's like, all right, come here. And I walk in, I got this huge laceration on my head and he just grabs a thing of duct tape and just like wraps my head in duct tape. He's like, there you go. And I'm like, okay, that obviously doesn't help, but like, you're not going to do anything about it. You know what I mean? It just is what it is. So from one aspect of it, as a little kid, it, it was crazy, you know, all these, these kind of things, but at the same time, dealing with all those stresses and, and all that, by the time I got to the high school age, 
Now my brothers are away. They're in college. They're not around anymore. I get to the high school age and now I'm just a million miles an hour, you know, um, doing crazy things, pushing the limits with everything. And it's now been like ingrained into me that, uh, like I can't be hurt. Like nothing scares me because I've, I've been in all these super scary, tormenting situations, been, you know, beat up, you know, to the point, like one time I got beat up by my brothers with this, uh, you ever see those like raw hide, like three foot long dog bones? Mm-hmm. Heavy as hell. Yeah. Like you ever play that? You ever heard that game? Thank you, sir. May I please have another? No. So Sounds it's horrendous. like, yeah, like you get hit, like that someone hits you and you, you have to say, thank you, sir. May I please have another? And then they're like, yes, you may. And then they give you another one. Well, they, like they were doing that to me with this big dog bone that my, that we got as a Christmas present for our Rottweiler. Right. And they thought it'd be funny to hit me with this thing. And then I wouldn't say, thank you, sir. May I please have another. So the, the, like it started to get like the hits started getting harder and harder and harder. And then I basically started to try to fight back. And then I got like a really hard hit and I had put my arm up and I got my wrist broke. Like that's how hard I got hit, you know? So there was that kind of stuff. So by the time I got to high school, it was just, you know, I was a crash test dummy. You know, I, I had an entire childhood of this stuff, you know, broken over 30 something bones, had stitches, staples, concussions, you name it. And it was just like, I remember being in high school would do something crazy and I'd break my wrist and I'd just start laughing about it and make jokes. Like I would literally get grounded by this point in high school when I would get injuries by my mom because I had had so many injuries and she's like, do you realize how expensive it is every time you go do one of these stupid ass things? And then next thing you know, like, uh, I got to take you to the hospital, you know, for another, for another injury. So, um, but that was part of it too. So with that kind of tempo and that kind of lifestyle that I started to, you know, find myself going into, uh, the, the, the idea of sitting in college and going to school for five years to then do another three years just seemed like the most boring thing in the world to me. Yeah. You know, so, and although it was something that I'd probably be good at, you know, I just, I didn't feel like it was, it was calling to me. And I think the one saving grace in all of this knowing my personality type is uh, at the time I I was in high school, I still don't do drugs or drink, but at the time I saw drugs and alcohol as the enemy. All the abuse that I had all came around the times when everyone got drunk. When everyone got drunk or there was drugs around, you know, with all these high school kids, when I was little, that's when all the bad things happened. So I started, I was associating bad times, you know, physical pain, emotional pain, the torment. I was associating that as a, at, with, um, with drugs and alcohol. And then I get to high school and all the, the physical stuff stops, right? Because my brothers are now gone. But one of the things that I started to see was all my friends who we used to do great things together, they started to lose all their dreams and aspirations and all the things that we used to love to do together. They didn't want to do them anymore. 
You know what I mean? Because they wanted to go hide in an attic and go drink like when their parents were out at dinner. You know, they wanted to go uh, walk out into the woods and instead of riding the trails mountain biking, they wanted to go out in the woods and just sit there and smoke weed or whatever. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So I'm like, I was watching all of the all of the exciting things and all the fun things that we were doing and all the people's motivation go away and replacing it with what I had previously looked at as what the enemy was, you know, and that was one of the reasons why I was drawn to that whole thing with SEAL Team 4 doing the battling the drug cartels in South America because I was like, there's people who go hunt these dudes. That's what I want to do. And that was kind of like what, what brought me into that from a psychological standpoint as I understand it at this point in time, like obviously the older I get, the more experiences you have, the perspective you have on things, you're like, Oh, I see what was going on. You this is I mean? why I love asking the early yeah, childhood questions. Yeah. And, and that's one of the huge things that I think is really overlooked. I know working with an organization called operation restored warrior that helps prevent veteran suicide through healing the heart and, and, you know, bringing veterans to Jesus and stuff like that. One of the one of the processes of that is they go. There's many factors that contribute to PTSD, but one of the big things that they find, like you were saying, consistently is there was some type of trauma that happened between the age of three and seven years old that the people build up walls around because you're you're in survival mode at that point. You know what I mean? And you don't have understanding and like rational thinking. It's this is live or die. You know. And then you're like, this is bad. I create protection around that. And now I put in a defense mechanism to protect myself around that. And now all other decisions around that are made on supporting that way of protecting my survival, you know, and then it builds out from there. And it might not be one thing. It could be multiple things. But um, well, that was one of the common threads with that program was they basically chase the rabbit hole to find those things that happen in your childhood so you could recognize them, recognize how you've built up these walls and how you've reacted into that and come to terms with it and understand that that wasn't your fault necessarily. You were a little kid, right? But now you can start rebuilding and, and opening up those channels and making new decisions with a, with a new thought process of like, I don't have to worry about that anymore because I'm not a little kid anymore. I'm not in that position anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, completely. And it's funny, there's another organization, Save a Warrior, does the same thing. It's headed by a guy that was uh, CIA. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that I think is one of the reasons why some people go to war, see and do horrific things, and are okay. And some people go to war, see and do horrific things, and then come back and then take their own life. You know, we have to look at all these layers of the onion. You can't just say, oh, the firefighter took her own life because they saw that kid that died in the house fire. It's, it's, you know, completely just deviating from where the actual truth is. So, yeah. yeah. So with you being a vulnerable, you know, feeling very vulnerable as a child, basically because of your brothers, did you find Muay Thai empowering? Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're the ones who actually got me into it. Oh, really? My brother, uh, the younger of the two, Gene, he was like, I was in eighth grade and I was probably 135 pounds and getting ready to go into high school. And he's like, dude, we got to, we got to, you know, I know you're tough, but you got to learn, you got to learn how to fight because you're going to get to high school and there's a lot of big dudes there and you're just going to be, you're going to be the butt of all the jokes and you're just going to be a rag doll. Like if you don't figure this out. 
and like, okay. So he's like, there's this fight club that I know about. And you're not supposed to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's in this dude's basement. And I'm like, okay. So he takes me, he's like, we're going to take you there. We're going to teach you how to fight. And I'm like, all right. Well, it turns out it's a, a dude who doesn't have a gym yet. He trains Muay Thai. This is again, mid nineties. So mixed martial arts wasn't really big yet. And no one really knew in our area, at least what the hell Thai boxing was. So it turns out it was Thai boxing and, and I go in there and, uh, I'm like the youngest dude there, 135 pounds, 15 years old or so, however old an eighth grader is. I don't know. Oh, my son's eight now, so he's only 13, and he's like 70 pounds. He's tiny. So Yeah. So, young kid like that, coming into the coming into this environment, and now I'm training with a bunch of police officers, lifeguards, uh, you know, just people who are into Muay Thai, but the smallest dude in there is probably like 185, 190. I'm training with men, like grown-ups, and the only reason I'm in there is because my brother knows these, these guys and like vouched for me to come train with them. So this turns into the thing. And I just, I just fell in love with it. And it was like, just the, I tried looking into a couple martial arts previously. And it was, there was, again, I, I was so immature in, in the thinking and just so fast paced about stuff, like not being patient that, when I tried like karate and taekwondo and stuff, they just wanted to do so many of the katas and just, you know, all these things like, I want to fight people. You know, I mean, I had this underlying anger from all this trauma, you know what I mean? And I just wanted to smash things. And when I got in there, it was like how hard the strikes were with the tie kicks and the knees and the elbows. I just like fell in love with it. And I just would leave it all in the training studio. You know what I mean? And, um, and I was pretty wild in, in, in high school, but as I got further along in high school, it it was, I didn't have to fight. I got a lot of fights in high school, but like the, the more, uh, time I spent in the Thai boxing gym and all that kind of stuff, the more maturity I started to grow and the less I need, felt I needed to prove myself to everybody. You know what I mean? Oh, completely. I always tell people, try try getting road rage off of two hours of Muay Thai. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah. You're just going to be like, all right, whatever. Just yep. drive off. <laughs> but that was, that was like one of the things that, you know, I, when I was in high school, I kind of got the reputation of being just this, the, like this crazy dude because it didn't, it didn't matter to me. Like I, there was dudes I fought in high school that were like the biggest kids in school. And at this point now I'm like 145, 155 pounds. And they were like, dude, this guy's going to kill you. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care about anything. You know what I mean? You think I'm afraid of that guy? And, and I'd go get in a fight with him. I'd hold my own. And a lot of these cases, I'd win the fight. And they're like, how the hell is this 155 pound kid, you know, smashing this dude who's three grades ahead of him, you know, and putting him in the hospital? Uh, like, this doesn't make any sense. This dude's nuts, you know, but it was just, it was, yeah. Like at that point, the like part of it was just no, no fear and it was a lot of underlying you know rage that would that would come out that i hadn't figured out how to harness yet and that's why i'm saying it's so good i'm so thankful that i the the one decision that i think i made that was the right one 
was not doing drugs and alcohol. Or becoming an architect. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, with with that, if I were to do drugs, I would be a complete junkie. Like, I know my personality type. Or even with the alcohol, it might I'd be a complete alcoholic. Yeah, but you might have fought someone and with... With the training that you have, maybe hurt someone or killed someone, or or you know found yourself getting knifed, or yeah, like you see a lot of you know a lot of people going through. Yeah, so that worked out well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, well, lead me through the recruitment story because uh, Pat McNamara is my favorite one. Yeah, his dad actually sent a lawyer with him to the army recruiter to make sure the paperwork was all. He ended up as a Delta operator, but to make sure he got put on the track that he was wanting to get put. So what was your uh, recruitment Mine was the complete opposite. (laughs) Mine was the complete opposite. I was a total idiot, right? I show up and I'm like, hey, um, I don't know what ranks are and all that stuff. Like I know there is rank, but like I don't know what to call anyone. So I just kind of show up and I'm like, hey, um, so I heard there's this Navy SEAL thing. How do I go about doing that? And again- Here's a 17-year-old kid, 150 pounds, showing up, saying he doesn't really know what the hell it's called. He doesn't know anything about it. He just wants to do this Navy SEAL thing that he heard about. So the recruiters are like, yeah, so does everyone else. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so they kind of brushed me off. And I was like, no, I, this, how, do I, how do I do this? And their kind of attitude was, dude, if you don't even know how this whole thing works, if you don't even know what the seals actually are. There's no way you're going to make it through this training. You're not prepared, you know? And so they basically just like, that's not for you. We're not going to give you a contract. And they just basically sent me out of the, of the office. They didn't really give me the time of day. So I was like, Hmm. So I left there and I went over to the, to the Marine recruiter place and the Marines, I walked in there and these dudes were just jacked. Like they were all this, they looked like those like, the cartoons of the bulldogs, you know, where, where they're just huge mm-hmm. and just the tight uniforms. Yeah. And super muscular. And they're like super intense. Like what's up? Oh, you want to be a Marine? And I'm like, and I was like, yeah, dude, I, I wanted to do this Navy seal thing, but these guys won't give me the time of day. Does the Marines have anything that's close to what the Navy seal thing is? So they started telling me about like, oh, I'll do that. You don't want to do that. The Navy's, you know, they started talking all the trash about the Navy <laughs> and they were telling me I need to be recon. Recon's where it's at. And I'm like, I've never even heard of this recon thing. I, I mean, I hadn't really heard of the SEAL thing either, you know, but, um, but these guys were just so intense about it. And I was just like, it was only, like, they were trying so hard to sell me on it. And I was like, why the hell won't the Navy guys talk to me about this? You know, so the fact that the Navy guys just like kind of kicked me out of the office and these guys are like ready to sign me up to go be a recon dude today. I was like, all right, thanks for the information. And I walked back over to the Navy. I went back over like a few days later. I go back over to the Navy recruiter place and I'm like, hey man, why won't you let me, why won't you let me try out for this SEAL thing? And they're like, because you're probably not going to make it. And I'm like, well, what does it matter to you if I make it or not? And they're like, well, you know, it's just a lot of paperwork and this and that. And I'm like, what do I need to do? And they're like, well, first off, you need to, we don't even know if you have the smarts for it. You have to take this written test, the ASVAB. And then after that, you have to take this physical fitness test, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, well, let's have me take the ASVAB. 
and let's go outside. I'll do this physical fitness test. And if I hold up my end of the bargain, just give me a damn contract. What do you care? So he's like, all right, let's go do this physical test, you know, and basically thinking I was going to fail it and I passed it. So they're like, huh, okay, here, take the written test. And I got a really good score on it. So they're like, all right, well, (laughs) you know, they're like, I just hope you realize how hard this training is. Like, there's a lot of people who want to do it. And we just don't want you to get stuck in the Navy doing some job that you don't want to do, you know? And, um, so anyway, I, I'm like, well, let me hold up my end of the bargain. Let me worry about that. You worry about giving me the paperwork. Let me worry about handling the tests and the actual, you know, qualifications part. So with all that, with me not understanding any of this stuff, long story short, they don't have to sell me on the bonus. Apparently, if you make it through SEAL trading, there's like an $11,000 bonus that I was supposed to get. That was left out of my contract because, uh, sorry, we're out in the woods. There's a lot of crazy stuff that happens out here, <laughs> right? So um, the uh, I get my contract, but they have it marked off that I don't get the the $11,000 bonus. So I'm the only one in my class who doesn't get $11,000 bonus upon graduation of SEAL training. So what, what, how would that benefit the recruiter for doing? Did they get a kickback if they did? I have no idea. All I'm saying is I'm an idiot because I show up to boot camp and in boot camp, they're like, hey, we need your account number. We need this, this, and this. I'm like, I can't. My parents told me you never give anyone your bank account number. Like, I'm not telling you my bank stuff. They're like, do you want to get paid or not? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, we need your banking info so that we can pay you. And I'm like, pay me for what? (laughs) Like, your paycheck, idiot. Do you want to get your paycheck or not? I'm like, we get a paycheck? Like, yes. What do you mean? And I'm like, I thought it was a volunteer military. They're like, oh my God. So this isn't Army National Guard? They're like, oh my God. (laughs) And I'm like, there's no draft, idiot. It's a volunteer as in there's no draft. And I'm like, no way. Because I had a volunteer firefighter. I had a volunteer fire department in my hometown and they didn't get paid because it was volunteer. So uh, when I had growing up, I'd always heard, oh, it's a volunteer military. I'm thinking is they feed you, they give you a place to live. Like I didn't realize that boot camp wasn't your entire time in the military. Like, I didn't realize that you got to live out in town and have a car and have like a family. I know I'm an idiot, right? So I'm thinking like my, the movies I have seen where the dudes are in boot camp, living in those barracks. That's what I thought I signed up for the next six years. I thought that was the next six years I was living in a barracks and doing that and then going out on missions. Like that's, that's what I thought. And then, you know, obviously it was way different, but you know, um, but yeah, so the, they totally didn't go over. I, I guess they just totally didn't believe I was going to even make it through boot camp, maybe because like none of this stuff was explained to me, you know, it just kind of like put the paperwork through, like, let's get this guy out of here. You know, um, the bonuses weren't in there and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but went to, went through boot camp, did that fine, got to my, what they call the a school, which was like, whatever the job is that you're going to supposed to have in the Navy. You know what I mean? That was another thing. I was supposed to be a mineman. 
And then I was supposed to be leaving like months after graduation of high school. And then I get a phone call. They're like, hey, uh, that job rating that you have, you, you, the contract's not happening more because they're shutting down that they're not going to have Mineman anymore. So if you want to keep your SEAL contract, you got to leave in like three days. And we're changing your rating to aviation ordinance. And I'm like, what? So I like I'm not supposed to leave for like another couple months and I get a phone call. If you want to keep your contract, you gotta leave in three days. So next thing you know, I'm packing up my stuff, I leave for boot camp. This before you graduated? I just graduated okay. high school. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So the uh go to boot camp. When I'm in boot camp, the USS Cole gets attacked. And then I'm in my AV uh, my school for aviational ordinance. And, you know, I was trying really hard. I went from being a, you know, knucklehead in high school. Like now I'm uh, in in the military and I'm starting to kind of get my act together. You know what I mean? And then in A school, I graduated first in my class and got uh, an early advancement and then showed up to SEAL training and then made it through the SEAL training in, in one shot. So mm-hmm. with that, see, I think that's fascinating. And there's... So many interesting stories, whether it's, you know, the, the Green Beret path, PJs, or all these, you know, these operations, um, men and women that had on, uh, that burning desire, what made them not ring the bell? And, you know, a lot of them had read the men with green faces and had this, you know, GI Joe, their whole childhood. And some of them, like Brent Gleason and Sonnen recently, you know, were, were in finance. And then they just said, you know, the towers got hit and they're like, screw it, I'm going to go be a SEAL. What was your burning desire? What carried you through to not ring the bell when so many of the men around you were? Uh, I want to say part of it, part of it now looking back on it was growing up, my family had money, right? We weren't like uber wealthy, but like we're upper middle class. And there was a lot of people who thought my life was easy because I wasn't poor. You know what I mean? But they didn't see all the shit that was happening behind the scenes. And part of me, I wanted to fight. I loved Thai boxing. I got in a lot of stupid fights in high school. Like, I, and I wanted something to fight for, something to fight about. You know what I mean? To, to be a part of something like that. And I didn't just want to fight. I wanted the hardest thing that there was. And I wanted to prove to myself, I guess I wanted to prove to others, you know, that give me the hardest thing you got and I'm going to crush it. You know what I mean? So the, but at the same time I had like a, like I loved the the adversity. I loved the, the challenge. It was one of those things, you know, like in Thai boxing, like you get a really hard hit and, and, and where some people would be like, cower and whimper that they got hit really hard it was one of those things like you get a hard hit and you knew it was hard and you look at that other person you just smile and be like all right motherfucker sorry mm-hmm. like, no no you please. Yeah, yeah you're like all right that was a good one i'll give you that you know and you're like replying with a smile you know and it was like and it just makes you fight harder you know what i mean so it was one of those things like the worse things got the harder i fought so being in that training being in those those times of uh like adversity or whatever it was the worse it got, the more fight got pulled out. It wasn't it wasn't the worse things got, the more I wanted to cower away. It has the opposite effect, you know. And um that was part of it. But the other the other part of it too is 
And I, I understood this a lot more when I started working with the dogs after my time in the military was you have some of these dogs that it's the worst, the, the worst dog out there. You have a, a, a person who's a very soft handler and they don't give the dog direction. And without direction, the dog is just pure chaos. It's on your furniture. It's chewing things up. It's being loud and barking. And it's got, there's the, all this energy is just being thrown all over the place because it's not being directed. And then you bring someone in and you put the, you put that firm like standard there and you guide this dog and you say, this is what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Right. And I think as a kid, I think I had probably way too much freedom from to a certain extent because I was just all over the place, just being a wild man. And then when I got into this atmosphere, it was like what I needed was someone to give me a standard and a purpose and to hold me accountable. And it was one of those things where like one of the, the, I don't think this is just alone to the SEAL teams, but one of the things that they try to encompass or like, you know, drive into you there is when you screw up, it's normally not you who pays the price. When you screw up, someone else gets hurt. Mm -hmm. Fire service is the same. Yeah. So in these lines of work, not necessarily corporate work, but more of a trade skill or, or, you know, something of that nature, like firefighting, law enforcement, you know, EMS, like when you have an accident, the other person gets hurt, not necessarily you. So a lot of times where you're going through the training, if you were to screw something up, they might have you sit there in front of the whole class on a chair get to take a break. The whole class is doing push-ups or doing some horrible thing, sitting in the surf zone, doing something that's really uncomfortable or hard. And then you get to count, you get to count the reps for them, you know, and everyone's just looking at you and you have to count, you know what I mean? Or they're going to do more. So now the whole class is getting punished because you did something wrong. Oh, you want to show up late? Cool. Hey, you wait here. Let's get him a coffee. You want to be late? What do you need a coffee? You, You need a little energy? You know, this necessarily doesn't happen to me, but you see it, you know, and the whole class is now in the surf zone, rolling around in the sand. They're cold, they're wet. They're starting their day off. Like, dude, seriously, this is how we're starting our day off because you couldn't get here in time. And you just look up there. You're like, I don't want to be that guy because I'm mad at him for being late, but I could only imagine how shitty that must feel to be sitting there. You know what I mean? And if you, if the dude didn't care about it, he wasn't going to last long in the class anyway, because the class would basically make it so he wouldn't be there that's exactly what happened in my very first fire department in Hialeah we had this guy who came from from the paramedic side and I mean you're describing exactly lazy boy brought out onto the drill ground everyone else doing PT and the sad thing was he was one of the ones that didn't care he just thought it was funny and he got washed out yep and it was just different it was like growing up in New Jersey pre 9-11 everything changed in 9-11 but in my high school and all that stuff, like we would make fun of people who flew the American flag. You know what I mean? Like if you ha- if you were an American flag kind of person, we'd think you were like a redneck, you know, like some stupid inbred redneck, you know, because that's just where you grew up. Like it wasn't it wasn't in the South and there wasn't this love of country or whatever. So it wasn't until I was in the military to where my attitude changed for the country because it was it was 
it changed because instead of just being some knucklehead teenager who is just rebelling against everything he could possibly rebel against, you know what I mean? Just for the sake of being rebellious. Like, you can't tell me what to do. I'll do whatever I want. You know what I mean? That Like the stupid, thick-headed kid. Uh, and then turned into, I'm part of the team. And you started learning a little more history and you started learning tradition. And then you have these guys and you're training, you know, for different things. And the USS Cole happens and it's like, ooh, things are getting real. Then when I was going through SEAL training is when 9-11 happened. And now it's like, okay, it is real, you know? And, um, and then, you know, you started getting that sense of pride, that sense of, of country and service and all that. And really what, what it was is, you know, there was all this potential and what it just needed to need to be focused is like having a, having a fire hose, just throwing gallons of water out and there's a lot of energy but it's a different type of energy. And if you took that same amount of water and put it through like a high pressure hose um, and you're using it to like cut through metal, like a water jet, you know, and you're using it to, you know, so focused, there's all this potential energy in that, a different type of energy where the other one just makes a big mess and gets everything wet. And this one, you fine tune it and guide it. And now you're cutting through metal with this same stream of water. That's like basically what the the program did for me um, from a maturity standpoint and from a, like a life standpoint, like a, like by the, and then what happened also with that was when I got to the team and I got my trident, it was, I'm no longer, it's no longer rich Graham anymore. It's if I do something stupid or something happens, it's no one cares that it's me. It's a Navy seal. You know what I mean? And it works both ways. Sometimes it works in your favor where when you want to talk to someone and go, why we listen to him? Oh, he's a Navy SEAL. Okay. So that works out good, you know, but on the flip side, it's when you do something stupid, oh, that was done by a Navy SEAL. You know what I mean? And now the whole community, you get one bad SEAL who's smuggling drugs back from Australia or Guam or, you know, the, the Thailand or something like that. And, uh, the entire team, the, like all the teams, like Navy SEALs in general get thrown under the, under the rug as these guys are doing, uh, drug smuggling. You know what I mean? And it looks bad on the whole community. And it's like, okay, there is one dude who made a stupid decision. That doesn't mean all SEALs are smuggling drugs. You know what I mean? I mean, you see that with law enforcement, you know, especially you have, you know, all, you know, thousands upon thousands of officers are going to work every day trying to make their community better. And you got one officer who does something stupid. And now everyone focuses on the one officer that did something stupid versus all the people who are doing everything right. You know what I mean? And it doesn't matter what job you're in. There's always going to be someone who does something stupid in, in, any job. It doesn't matter because people are people. Yeah. Well, it's interesting with the fire hose analogy because that's what I've seen. You know, this is my opinion, but that's what I've seen. I love the fact there's gunfire in the back while we're doing this interview. Right yeah. <laughs> um, that this last year is the reason you had that hyper focus is you had real leaders putting through you through a series of crucibles, a series of training evolutions and forging you into an elite operator. With what I've seen, not just picking on this country, but I'm absolutely including this country in this last year, but 
Oh, in the world, we've seen some countries have great leaders that have seen them through this pandemic, and they've mm-hmm. been living life like normal for months and months and months. And then you've had wishy-washy. I think, in my opinion, we've had people that call themselves leaders that actually finally had to lead, and it was a complete shit show. So a lot of this violence, a lot of this, you know, right? Whether it's anti-police, anti-Asian, whatever, you know, the 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 hate is manifesting in. I'm seeing you have this middle group of people that inherently are good people you have the the top percentage that no matter what the environment they're going to do the right thing you have the bottom percentage that no matter what the environment they're going to be shitbags but then that middle group can be led and what i've seen this is you know i'd be interested to get your perspective this is my opinion is that there hasn't been leadership there hasn't been this purpose and even even with the whole lockdown like just stay in your house and shut up don't come out if you come out, you're selfish. You're going to destroy the the hospital systems of the world versus framing it like, hey, this is a virus. It's going to go around. I want you to act like you're going to get this virus. When you think about eating more sensibly, when you think about exercising, mindful practice, getting outside, sleep. So to me, this last year has really underlined where the good leadership has been and when the bad leadership has been. So using that analogy of your your energy being focused what have you what have you seen with that same philosophy this last year and not not talking politically i'm just talking about in general well i i i don't think there's a way you can really do it without being political about it because in my opinion and maybe i'll be proven wrong right so it is opinion so it's not necessarily a fact but what i see is you at first i'd go when we go well good leadership you have to go well what are you leading what are you trying to lead towards and there's two types of leadership. There's a leader who leads by inspiring and there's a leader who leads by dictating. What we've seen here is dic- dictating type of leadership. You have to listen to me because I'm the one who's in charge. So that is leading by uh, you do as I say or else. Do as I say or else you're going to get a $5,000 fine or a $500 fine or do as I say or you can't go on the plane do as I say, or you can't go to work. You know what I mean? So that's, they're, they're not, they're, they're leading not by example. Okay. So you have the certain politicians, you can't go to the salon, but I can, you can't go to a restaurant, but I can, you can't do family gatherings, but we can, right? Because, uh, it's, it's for you, not us. Um, what I would say as far as how are they how are the the people who are leading doing in their job? Well, I think they're doing a great job in what they're doing if what they're trying to achieve is to move America toward a socialist socialistic style country to where I think where all of this is ultimately leading us is to a social credit score system. They're going to use the the COVID passport as an excuse to do what China's been doing there for over 10 years. You know what I mean? And in China, they have a system to where everything's monitored, everything's tracked, and all the people rate each other on how they're doing in society, and then that tells you what you can and can't do. Oh, you have a bad social credit score? You can't go on the train. You can't go to a movie theater because you have a bad social credit score. You can't get a hotel room or you can't travel out of your state. 
You know what I mean? And um, and ultimately, I think that's what's happening with the cancel culture. That's what's happening with um, restaurants, like something like, you know, something like the My Pillow thing. My Pillow got taken out of all these stores, Tractor Supply, Kroger. You know, off. There's a whole list of stores that 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 the My Pillow got taken out of, not because the product sucked. It wasn't like, dude, no one likes your pillow. We're taking out of our store. I said, oh, you supported the previous president, so we don't like your your thought process. So we're going to take your stuff out of all the stores. And what that is is that basically shows everyone else, hey, dude, if you if you want to play games like that, we're just going to silence you. We're going to take your stuff out of stores. We're going to shut down your bank accounts. We're going to pull you off your social media stuff. So comply or die in, in like socially, like you're gonna have a social death. Like you're not gonna be able to do anything. You're not gonna be able to function. And that's without the, the credit score being implemented yet. But these are all the things that are, these are all the things that's happening and are being allowed to happen and being pushed to happen in a social sense. That's basically pre-gaming everyone to get them ready for when this thing hits and gets implemented using COVID as an excuse, uh, you know, so if we're talking about leaders of a socialistic style government, then yeah, they're doing an awesome job. They're right on track. If we're talking about free thinking American culture, where we stick to the constitution, we stick to our bill, bill of rights that we all have God given rights, inalienable rights that the government doesn't give us free speech. The government there is to protect our free speech. The government doesn't give us the ability to protect ourselves, right? They didn't grant us the ability to have a second amendment. Their job is to enforce that we keep a second amendment, you know, and you see all this stuff that's happening with the borders right now. And there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming across the border and I don't blame them. I'd probably be doing the same thing. You know what I mean? But right here, while they're telling everyone in America that the white man is bad and America is so horrible and racist, and this is such a horrible place and convincing our youth that they should feel bad about being an Americans, you have people from all over the world going through the hardest conditions to get here for a chance at the American dream. So if it's so bad, why are all these people of color coming across the border by the thousands to get here. You know what I mean? So it's all, in my opinion, it's all propaganda. They shut down your business. They tell you, you can't go to school. You can't, you know, get together in, in gatherings yet. They have thousands of people sitting in holding cells and then just letting them out in communities all around. So COVID, COVID matters. If your kids want to go to school, COVID matters. If you want to go to a sporting event or if you want to go to work or a restaurant or something, but COVID doesn't matter when you have all these people shoved in a, in a, uh, in a building together at 4,000, in some cases, 400 times capacity. And then they're just launching them all out without allowing them to have COVID tests. And, um, you know, it's just an interesting thing. I, I heard on the, on the news today that they're still trying to pursue, uh, president Trump for crimes against humanity and for, for crimes in, uh, the deaths of people for COVID for how he, mishandled the the practice and allowed didn't enforce tough enough mask mandates and all this thing and was getting people killed meanwhile at the same time 
They're literally letting thousands of people come across the border and they're checking them in. So the president right now, his one of his main duties as president is to control the borders of the country. So there's a dereliction of duty right now because the vice president and the president are turning their backs on this whole situation, but they're aware that people are coming in, they're checking them in, and then they're putting them on buses and they're paying for them to stay in hotels. They're paying for their bus fare to ship them all over the country. And Nancy Pelosi and, and them, they passed a law that, or didn't, they, they vetoed the law or didn't allow it to go into law that all these people should have COVID tests. So they know that there's tons of people with COVID and South America is supposed to have like the really bad version of it right now. I thought everyone had the really bad version. Yeah, everyone's got the really bad version. But I'm just saying for like the argument's sake, they're like, oh, the Brazilian variant, so bad. You have all these people coming up from Central and South America and they know that there's a lot of COVID down there. And so at this point, we have the one president didn't tell us and he's getting ready to go to, to court on crimes against humanity for allowing people to die because he didn't put in a mask mandate. Meanwhile, you have another president who's legitimately signing off and paying to ship people who we know have COVID all over the country to put them and flood them in communities that are already hammered because we haven't been able to go to work all year. You know, the, so I'm just saying like the, the leadership, none of this stuff makes sense. The only thing that makes sense is in the sense that we're trying to do a shift of how the country is governed. Um, and if that's the case, if, if you want a free nation, they're doing a horrible job. If you want a socialistic style country that's led by dictators and tyrants, they're right on track. Mm-hmm. You know, See, it's interesting. Cause I mean, I'm, I'll be completely honest, not for left or right. I'm not, I wasn't a fan of the, the person that our previous president was the personality. Um, but for me, it's, an observation that I just think our system is broken. You yeah. and I know some incredible leaders that will never, ever have the opportunity to get to that position. Actually, I've got um, Tulsi Gabbard supposed to be coming on soon. Yeah. She seems to be someone that is accepted by, you know, a lot of people. Yeah, like side in the middle defense. ground. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's just my thing is what has killed me about this last year you know, again, is these extreme conversations. Oh, it's, you know, manufactured, it's not real, whatever, or leave your house and you're going to kill everyone. With the middle ground, you mentioned restaurants. Well, yep. Chick-fil-A has stayed open the whole time, yet our gyms were closed down. We're very lucky here in yep. Florida. It, they open come somewhat quickly. But I'm not saying that it's it's fake. And no, you no, can't, you're not. And you That's can't what I'm get saying. sick. I'm just saying it's one of those things like never let a good tragedy go to waste kind of thing. Mm, exactly. And they're, they're leveraging this because when you talk about health, diet, all that kind of stuff, there's been no conversation coming down from the government going, hey, guys, you need to get outside. You need to exercise. Get those masks off. Go to a place that's private. If you cared you know about I mean? lives, why have we not been addressing obesity, cancer, smoking, addiction? Exactly. All these things. Exactly. So it, you have, you go who's who's making the most money off of this? Who's profiting off of this? Who has the power? How many people have been granted extreme amounts of power through all this? One of the questions I have is, who the hell put the CDC in charge? Because while over the last year, I've been into many countries, I've been all over the place. And everywhere you go, every airport, every country has the same exact game plan Six feet, stop the spread, wash your hands, wear a mask, this and this. It's not even like there's different rules per regions. Every single country 
is doing the same damn thing all off of the CDC guidelines. So you're like, who put the CDC in charge? And why are the guidelines being treated like laws? And if everyone, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's a very curious thing to me that in some cases, it, you know, it's never, it's when I was at the airport, for example, this this is so simple. So at the airport, I'm going through the airport and there's there, it's plastered everywhere. There's signs on the floor. There's little polka dots on the floor. Stand here six feet apart. You look over and there's signs on the wall. Wash your hands. Everywhere you go, you can't you can't look without seeing some kind of placard about social distance, wear a mask, wash your hands. You would think that with all of that, when you get on the airplane, they would spread you apart on the plane and put like one person per row so that everyone could have that six foot spread. Like they're saying what we need. you get on the plane, it's the complete opposite. They pack you in because they have less flights going. Every flight that I've been on has almost been completely packed out. No seats left, you're elbow to elbow. So for the last couple hours in the airport, everywhere I've gone, you've been hammering me with six feet, stop the spread, wash your hands, wear a mask. We get on the plane. And now you're on the plane And even better yet, when I'm traveling international from here to Brazil, I had to get a COVID test at the airport hours prior to the flight. So I just had a COVID test come back that says, I don't have COVID. Every person on the plane just had a COVID test that says we don't have COVID. So no one can be on the plane with COVID, right? If their tests are accurate. So now you're on the plane and everyone's still wearing the mask. But with under that, you're like, okay, well, if we all have been tested that we don't have COVID, we would think we could be able to take the masks off once we're on the plane because we're all safe. If I do have COVID on me, it's from being within the airport. So that's coming with me. It's on my clothes. It's coming home with me regardless. You know what I mean? And if it's being passed on everyone's clothes, it's going home with everyone regardless you know what I mean? Sorry. Uh, if, I mean, you've maybe done the hazmat training and all that stuff, the whole decon, your hands and tools, procedures, cutout procedures for a chem bio stuff. Like all this stuff is a joke because you could wear a mask all you want. If it's out there in the atmosphere and you have it on your clothes, you're bringing it home. It's on your shoes. You're bringing it in your house. It's all over everything. You know what I mean? I watch the people at the, at the checkout counter. They touch every person's food from the shopping cart. Don't they're yo great. You're wearing gloves. You didn't change your gloves in between me and the last person. And now you just touched my stuff too, after touching everyone else's. So it's like you have, if it's on me, it's on me, but we should be able to just have our masks off and be able to just breathe on the airplane, you know, but no, 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 you can't do that. You know? And then they have everyone take their mask off at the same time. They don't even do it in like relays. Like, Hey guys, every third row is going to be able to eat their food with their mask off. They'll put their masks on then every, the next, like, so one, three, six, nine rows, right. Then we're going to do two, four, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll do it in, in shifts to when people take their masks off to eat or whichever seat you're in kind of thing. Instead, they have everyone take off their masks at the same time in the plane for 20 to 30 minutes while they eat their meal. 
Like you just contaminated the whole plane. So why not just let us take the masks off if you're gonna, cause it was never about that. And we asked them, I asked the, 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 the guy on the plane, I was like, Hey, how come you guys were hammering us outside? Cause they were, they were giving my one buddy crap about the mask he was wearing. Like didn't like the style of mask it was. And I was like, but now you have us all in here and we're all going to take our masks off and eat together. They're like, well, you know, uh, the, the airlines have done a study and the research shows that it's okay. And it's, it's within our, it's within the guidelines. Be like, who's making these guidelines? And how are these guidelines law? Like you're telling me that the guidelines say it's okay to pack people elbow to elbow to take your mask off for 30 minutes to eat. But the guidelines also say that when I'm outside in an open space, I have to be six feet apart from someone with a mask on. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like, well, these are the guidelines that we have to follow and it's been approved. It's been approved. So it's okay. You know, it's nothing to worry about. You know, the, the airplane is actually one of the safest places to be, you know, so it's like, okay, well, why can't we just keep the mask off for the whole time? Well, we just want to ensure we don't spread COVID. Be like, do you not understand how stupid this sounds? But I think that's just it is a lot of people in the wellness space are like, yes, you know, it's another virus and absolutely it's doing horrific things to some of these people that are vulnerable. And, you know, that's, those are the ones we need to protect. So why are we not talking about resilience? I, I was almost like uh, nauseated and laughing at the same time when a few weeks ago, WHO, new study shows obesity does contribute to survival of COVID. Like, well, no shit. I was saying that when this first happened. I had all these wellness guests on trying to deliver that message. But instead of go outside, exercise, you know, I mean, again, be apart from each other, but you know, get the sunlight, go swim, go do all these things. No, stay at your house, order Uber Eats, watch TV, you know, make sure you see the whole Tiger King series, you know, and get even more vulnerable and stay scared. Watch Fox or CNN, whatever. Make sure that you're still shitting yourself so that your immune system is even weaker. Like none of these messages make sense. I'm all for it if you talk about masks and you've been serving clean food in our schools and making sure PE stays in, you know, and bolstering gyms and making sure they stayed open as long as possible during all this. But it wasn't. If it me- if health was the message, then you've negated everything that's actually to do with health and you focused on hiding from this 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 virus. And I'm not, like I said, I'm in the middle. I'm just one of the normal people looking yeah. left and right going, no, I'm not going to lick my 103-year-old grandmother's face. And no, I'm not going to go hide in a box. Like, I'm going to get outside. I'm going to do everything I can. So my question to that is, who benefits? Well, I think that's it. I mean, sadly, I think there's no question that there's some sort of control element because I was talking to my brother in England, you know, and now they're like, we've got the vaccination. And again, I'm not vehemently opposed to it. I'm not a huge fan. I'm I'm probably going to take it just so I can see my fucking family because it's been two years and I haven't seen them yet. And it's probably going to be a game changer to allowing me to travel. But um, they're like, oh, well, now they're saying this vaccine isn't as good with this new strain. And I'm like, do you not see a pattern here? Every time that we're optimistic and we think we're coming out of this, someone brings something else into the conversation like, oh, no, don't get cocky because this is going to happen now. And I do. I can't help but feel like, yes, there is a control element. Whoever is coming from that wants to, to, yeah, to, to, to make people follow follow them follow rules rather than be as you said free thinking you know healthy men women and children of the u.s or england or wherever 
the moment America became a free country, there's been people trying to stop it from being free. You know what I mean? And the American experiment, that people call it, right, <clears throat> has this is the last stronghold. Okay, you have other countries who want to, like Brazil right now wants to get their get a second amendment like America. The people in charge don't want countries to be able to own guns like America does. You know what I mean? I've, I've worked in a lot of these countries where the guns are banned and all it does is you have the political class gets even stronger, right? And the, the criminal class gets even stronger and everyone else in the middle is just at the whims of, well, what will the government do for me? And what are the criminals going to do to me? Right? What are you going to do to me? And what are you going to do for me? And I'm just stuck here in the middle and I'm just waiting on everyone else to, to, to do something. You know what I mean? Like you, you're, you're in this, you're constantly stuck in this victim subject standpoint. Which you is have, that purpose thing that we started this conversation with. If yeah. you take away autonomy, then, you, you know, you create a lot of anxiety, a lot of mental yeah. ill health. And it's a very tricky spot to be in. And <clears throat> so when you when you look at all this stuff and you go, well, where... It's just so interesting. Like, if you listen to, to what people say and what they do, right now, over the last year, you have stopped the police. You know, we need to... We need to... The police are bad. The pol... We need to... The... The... Uh, this whole thing of like the the defund the police, but then you have the whole institutional racism. Okay, so at one moment you're being told that the police are bad, the police are racist. In fact, America as a whole society is racist. Our whole system is based off of racism, right? And we shouldn't trust it. We need to get rid of it and start over. While you're having that conversation, they're also saying, hey, guys, we need to take all the guns away from the American people. We need to get rid of guns. There's too much crime here. Well, if we get rid of the guns, who's going to protect us from the bad guys? Don't worry. You don't need guns because we have so many police. The police will protect you. Give your gun up. Stop being so... You know, stop being so crazy and thinking like clinging to your guns in your Bible. Like, just give your gun up. Let the police protect you. But I thought you said that the police were racist and the government was racist and I couldn't trust the government and the police and it was institutional. Like, if you were a person of color, like the 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 confusing message that that delivers, right? And you go, okay, well, who benefits from this? Who benefits when you take all the guns away? It's not the everyday citizen. You know what I mean? Who benefits when, you know, the they tell you that you're not allowed to, that you have to stay in your house and you have to, like right now, you have to get permission to leave. One of the things that's crazy, a lot of people don't realize this because they don't put it on the news here, is I was saying that this stuff was coming months ago. My buddy went over to Europe for a government work. He's like, dude, I'm in Greece right now and I'm in Germany. And he's he's like, do you realize <clears throat> that in Germany right now, everyone's being told to stay home? And then basically 
if you want to leave your house, you have to, there's like a, like a local email app kind of thing. And you send the government a message. Hi government. I'd really like to go to the grocery store because you're not allowed to leave your home. And the government has set up checkpoints all over. I'd really like to go to the grocery store. It's my, it's my day to leave the house. May I please go to the grocery store? And you send them a message and they go, okay, you can go to the grocery store between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. And they send you an email back with a little QR code. So you get this QR code. And when you leave the house and you go through one of the checkpoints, the people at the checkpoint scan your QR code to see if you're out of your house and you have oh, during the approved time, like your hall pass, right? So you can go to the grocery store and they're like, and then they come back and everyone's like, oh man, no, they never do that. What do you think the COVID passport is? It's the same thing dressed up in a different way. That's where it's going to go with it. We're going to tell you where you can and can't go, right? Based on, or do you have this or not? And the whole thing is, is crap because again, the same people are telling you, Hey, you need to get the COVID vaccine for everyone else. Everyone else's sake. Like you don't have a choice in this. Be like, well, you've been arguing for the last 20 years that it's my body, my choice when it comes to killing a baby, you know, you've been telling me it's my body, my choice. Well, that's different because that's, uh, you have to get the COVID vaccine. You know what I mean? Like the, the messaging is completely opposite. And, and one of the things I ask people, I go, just ask yourself is what's, is what they're trying to do. And this is regardless of whatever is what they're trying to do. Does it give you more freedom or less freedom? And that should be your, your gauge on is the government doing what's best for me? Does this make me more free or does this put me in more shackles? Well, perfect I- example, just to just interject. So I was very lucky to sit down in Portugal, which funny is enough is, is a country that's kind of, people look down their nose at it. They got their shit together a lot better than a lot of countries I know. Um, but in the year 2000, they had a huge opioid epidemic killing a bunch of their, their men and women, especially the military, because they were fighting in, in one of the African nations that they, they were, I guess, quote unquote, ruling. Um, and they decriminalized addiction, not smuggling, not selling, but they made the addict a medical patient ver- rather than a criminal. And you look at the history of drug prohibition after the failure of alcohol prohibition, it's, it's shit, you know, and then we pushed it out everywhere else. So, like you said, if you, if, is, is our government doing what's best? Anyone out there listening who's in EMS, who's in fire, who's in police knows damn well the horrific ripple effect of prohibition on our streets. Addicts dying, homelessness, prostitution, gangs, all these things. People leaving Mexico because their villages have turned into war zones and trying to come to the US. So whether it's immigration, whether it's citizen safety, police safety, all this stuff, that's all a part of that. You never, ever hear that mentioned. The obesity epidemic, another thing that's killing people, you never hear that mentioned. So my thing is, again, it's it's not political because they there's been inaction from the left and the right it's just it's our system is just bullshit so if we really care about american lives we shouldn't have the highest obesity rate on the planet 70 percent are obese or overweight Mm -hmm. we shouldn't have children that are destined to die before their parents because i mean you, you know look at look at schools now it's so sad yeah so from a humanist point of view 
looking at the proactive things. I mean, I agree with you completely with the civil liberties side. It, I feel, you know, like they're being infringed. Absolutely. Look at racism. I always talk about this. Slavery wasn't about race because Americans didn't gain from slavery. A few people that owned these cotton farms and tobacco farms got really fucking rich from getting a bunch of people to work for free. Those people could have been black. They could have been Irish. They could have been Chinese. But Joe Schmo, the blacksmith in, you know, Wisconsin wasn't gaining from slavery. So again, that's about money and greed and power, not about oppression and skin color. But they, there was an absolute movement of oppression, but that didn't come from a hatred of a different culture. It came from greed of the few profiting off the many. Yeah. And, and so to kind of go back to what your, your question was, is like, do I think the people here are leading in leading well? I don't, I don't think so. Cause I don't think, uh, I don't think they're doing the job that they're, that they're supposed to be doing based on what it is that the job, like, for example, leading. Yeah. But what are you supposed to be leading? Like, Right now, as a president, one of, you know, and I didn't think, I didn't think President Trump had the best tact, but at the same time, I think he made a lot of decisions on, hey, this is, this is the job. Oh, you don't like what's happening at the border? Change the law. But if that's what the law says, my job is to enforce the law that's on the books. This is the law that's on the books. So this is what I'm going to do. So currently, if we're going, your job is to enforce the border. Not enforcing the border and just letting people run across the border is not enforcing the border. When I left America to go to Brazil, I was not allowed to come back into the country without getting a COVID test and paying like $150 to take a COVID test. And then I had to be at the airport eight hours prior because it took four hours to do the tests. Then you have to do your check and all this stuff. So I spent a day at the airport uh, prior to coming back just to get on a plane, right? And then when I come back through, I have to go through customs and you know declare things and go through this whole process as an American citizen, right? Which is, you know, that's part of controlling the border. But you, there's so much stuff that's just so double-minded in, you know, law-abiding citizen, you need to do this, this, and this. Everyone else, you can do whatever you want. You know what I mean? Well, I went through the immigration process coming from England. Yeah. But, and, but then I also, again, to, to be fair, came from a country that our, you know, our currency is worth a lot. And it wasn't like an incredible amount for me, even though it was a lot of money and a lot of time and everything to get over here. I totally understand on the flip side, if you're in a poorer country, that's a huge amount of money that you have to pay. So again, where is that happy yeah. medium? But yeah, I mean, I I 100% agree. You know, if, if we changed the environment that we've created in some of these other countries that have you know, create a lot of crime, for example, you know, the drug issue that we have, then we're also less likely to have people trying to flee their country. So we can yeah. be proactive that way too. So, yeah. but should we be letting people come in that might be horrible people just jumping over our border? Also, no, you know? So yeah. again, it's that middle ground. But even people who are good people, right? I'm sure there's a, a many good people coming across the border and they just want a chance, okay? If you're in charge of America, 
you have to put America first. If you're in charge of a sports team or a company, maybe you own a restaurant, you have to put your employees and your restaurant first. There's a lot of amazing restaurants. They're not your responsibility. Your restaurant's your responsibility first and foremost. Then maybe once you get your restaurant going really good, maybe you could help out another restaurant or open another restaurant. But as a leader, if you're in a leadership position and your job is to run America, for example here, just because we're on the topic of the immigration stuff, the people coming across, even if they're great people, when they show up, and this shouldn't be a surprise because we've watched it happen in Europe with the people coming in from Somalia and Syria. When people show up with absolutely nothing and they don't speak the language, they're like, oh, well, they can do all the jobs and this and that. And okay, well, what jobs? You show up first off before you get a job, where are you going to stay? You have no money to stay anywhere. So where do you stay? Okay, well, while you're staying there, how do you eat? Okay, you have no clothes. How do you get clothes to get a job? Like you can't go to a job wearing the same clothes every day. So who gives you clothes? How do you find the job if you have no phone or internet or anything like that? You have no access and you don't speak the language. So someone needs to translate for you or you need to have a phone or all that kind of stuff. Well, how do you get a job if you don't even have a bank account? So we need to get you a bank account. How do you get a bank account without an ID? You know what I mean? So we have to set you up with like there's infrastructure. You can't just go get a job. There has to be infrastructure in place. And how do you support that infrastructure? So what happens is all the American taxpayer dollars that we don't have, that we're already in debt, right, has to go to support each one of these people. The kids, man, if we don't teach the kids and they're going to grow up and they're going to be criminals and whatever, because they just have to eat, they have to get money somehow. So now you throw them in the school systems, but the school systems are funded by your property taxes. So now all the people are like, oh, well, you know, it just it is what it is. Well, your property taxes are going to go up because the cost of school is going to go up. And all these other aspects now go up, right? And then all these high school kids who are trying to, who are already complaining about not making enough money working at McDonald's and all the other jobs, they're like, oh, we need a $15 minimum wage. They want that that minimum wage to be raised for those low-end jobs. Well, who do you think is going to get all those jobs now when you have all, all these people who who are not in a position to do executive style jobs because they don't have the money. They don't have the resources. They don't have the education. They don't speak the language, right? They might be great people, but now what happens is it affects the entire community. You have to work twice as hard because you have to pay for twice as many people, right? And now your kids are in competition with all these other kids to get the same job, to get their, that, you know, job process going right? So it's not good for the economy. It's not good for the American people. It's going to burden the, uh, the system with, you know, but you know who it does empower? It empowers the people who are in politics because then I go, Hey, we're, we're, we're going to help you. We're, we're going to set up programs to, to make sure that you're taken care of. And we're going to get everyone else to go to work tomorrow to pay for it. So now the people of that community, you want to talk about, well, what breeds, you know, uh, what the what breeds not necessarily racism, but if you want to put tension in a community, you tell one group, "Hey, you guys have to go to work tomorrow, and all these people who just showed up, you got to go pay for them." 
We're we're gonna we're gonna take that out of your paycheck to pay for them. Or even saw that even with the unemployment through COVID. Yeah, you know, people saying they didn't want to come back and work for you now because they got more. So even yeah. there wasn't race, there was just that yeah. that unfairness. And a lot of people who had government based jobs, they got paid all year. You know what I mean? You got the all the government jobs got funded all year long, and then the government told you you couldn't go to work. Your restaurant shuts down. You lose your job and all this kind of stuff. And now the government comes back in and goes, hey, we'll give you money to get your business going again. Unless you're white, you don't qualify for the grants. Everyone else will give them to you. So, you know, they were talking about trying to do reparations. They've worked that into the COVID relief, you know, um, getting that stuff back. But that causes, if you want to talk about what causes tension, you know, they've been saying... All the, you know, hammering everyone with white privilege, hammering everyone with all this stuff. The government comes in and says, hey, you can't go to work. Makes you go out of business. And then they tell you, we're going to give money to everyone else except for you to get back in business. And then they go, oh my gosh, people are angry. They're, they're, they're crazy. Be like, you guys literally created a problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, I mean, it's been you, 100% divide and conquer this last year. I mean, yeah, any, it's been, any idiot can see that. Yeah. So it's just, so from a leadership standpoint, I think they're doing a horrible job at doing what's right. They're doing a great job at doing divide and conquer and basically setting our country up to be a new style country, right? Like we see in Central and South America, like we see in Europe. They're, they're dismantling what America was thriving off of and then blaming it on, look, capitalism doesn't work. Dude, we don't have capitalism anymore. We haven't had capitalism in a long time. When the government's running your healthcare, the government's running your food, government's running our power, government's running our transportation, government's running our housing. Right now they're involved in school loans. Now they're involved in you know, oh, they're going to finance the rest of the world too with sending all the money, you know, they have COVID relief bill and like 9% goes to actual COVID and all the other money is going out to other countries. So they're taking, they're, the American taxpayer, the American middle class is the one who's getting hammered with the, with the burden of all this. And again, you go, does this make me more free or less free? You know, and instead of saying, hey, you know, live a healthy lifestyle, you know, um, make smart decisions for what's good for you and your family. If you feel like you're in jeopardy, if you feel like your health is in jeopardy, get the vaccine. Just know that the va- any vaccine comes with a risk. But if you feel that the risk is worth the reward, then take the vaccine. If you feel like wearing a mask is the best choice for you based on your health conditions, then we probably wear a, probably wear a mask. But these are things where we're giving you, that's, they talk about the guidelines. That would be giving guidance right? Let me give you smart guidance and you as a free thinking individual can make what's the best decision for you. That's giving you freedom. That's let me educate. Let me give you some education. Let me give you the freedom to make the decision on what's best for your family, for where you live, for what your lifestyle is. But that's not what we've seen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I mean, that was a a hell of a tangent, but I think it's important we have these conversations, you know, and I think especially, as you said, when there are when there are red flags, I mean, you mentioned education. We'll look at how 
you know, our young men and women, how much in debt they are when they graduate. You know, you mentioned the food. Well, look what they're spraying on our food and look at how they're treating these animals in these industrial farms. So where yeah. all these areas, and this was from the liberal and the Republican side, they've all been in power and this has been the case. These have contributed to the ill health yeah. and, you know, and, and the lack of safety of American drug prohibition has created a war zone on some streets, yeah. you know? Think, yeah. of it, think of it like this too. You go, okay, our kids right now are supposed to be like the smartest ever, right? They're all smart. And you go, how is it that you go from kindergarten to high school? You're taking trigonometry and calculus and algebra and all these things. And there's no math class that explains to you how the interest on a loan works. Why is it that no school is teaching you how the interest on a loan works? Why are the schools not teaching you how the interest on a credit card works? How is it that we're sending these people out into schools and they're taking loans on cars? They're taking loans on school um, and among other things, credit cards to like go live in another state. Our school system is completely failing our kids by not teaching them those just out of everything. Because that's what everyone's like. I had no idea I was going to get trapped into this huge bill that when I graduated from college, I was going to be paying back this debt for the next 30 to 50 years. Be like, and now you're mad. You're mad at society. You're mad at big corporate, you know, whatever for you're mad at the banks, but no one's mad at the school system for not teaching that. And you go, well, why does the school not teach that? Is the school that's not teaching that in with the universities, in with this whole thing that we're going to let kids come out of school and be enslaved to debt so they can never truly reach their true potential and be lied to that learning trade skills is a bad thing or looked down upon in American culture? So who benefits from this and where does this take us? And again, if we're trying to take America to build strong, independent, free thinking individuals, then with like, if we're trying to lead people in that direction, then we're failing. If we're trying to lead people in a direction of bringing them into more of a socialistic style of, Hey, don't worry. The government's going to take care of you. You just sit back and relax. Just keep giving us more power and we'll keep giving you more money. Right then they're succeeding because that's the way that's the way it's going and you can't you can't deny that fact <clears throat> it's not even my opinion there's there's no reason why when they used to teach that in schools there was what was the name of the class they had um life skills and like that yeah there was a, it was a whole life skills there's a name for it where they would cover all that stuff uh anyway i can't think of it right now but they don't teach it anymore why would you take that out well it's funny as well cuz i've i've made an effort to bring in people from Areas that I think other countries are doing very well. Yeah. Because one of the things that drives me crazy is this whole flag waving, we're the greatest country in the world. That's it. And not because we're keep working and we, you know, we're, we're growing and, but no, we're just the greatest. Just shut the fuck up, everyone else. We're the best. And I disagree. I think all countries are great in many areas, but they all have things they do better than other countries. Yeah. So I had a guy from Finland. And, you know, you look at the academic um, 
you know, ratings, they're always, like, you know, either number one or number two, but it, it fluctuates, but they're incredibly successful in the schools. And you look at the way they do it, you know, they're a lot more kind of play-based. And I mean that they're still learning, but they're just not like, you have to pass this test. You have to, you know, it's not, it's not test-based learning. They look at the child as a whole. So they look at maybe the seven-year-old that's getting bullied by his brothers. And they actually have things in place where that's taken into account, you know. Um, you look at some of the prison systems in Norway, Portugal's drug policy, you know, the NHS, which I think is amazing when it's funded properly in the UK. Mm -hmm. Imagine never having to worry about medical bills. You know, yes, that's government, but that's a good thing. That's keeping your people healthy. And if you can make sure that that then incentivizes prevention, good nutrition, exercise, so you're not spending all the tax money, that's another good thing too. So that's the thing that drives me crazy is there are countries all over the world that do different areas that we've discussed about well. Why can't each of the countries, the UK, everyone, have the humility to go, Norway, we're going to steal your prison system. It's awesome. Portugal, we're going to do it this way. And now you start fixing all these issues because yeah. no 18-year-old, sorry, no 21, 22-year-old should graduate with a bachelor's and $100,000 worth of debt. It's absolute insanity. When, you know, you went through basically a trade school, I went through a trade school, and, you know, I, I trained for including paramedic school, not even two years, and was a firefighter paramedic. And yet, it's funny, the university I went to, I'm still paying off my student loan and they keep hitting me up for donations for the university. I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> yeah. I've given you tens of thousands of dollars and you want me to keep, I don't, how, how does that even a thing? Yeah. But yeah, so it's not, again, it's not about bitching, it's just about reverse engineering to the nucleus of the problem. Yeah. Instead of arguing the minutia, which we've seen the last year, like go to the fucking source, go to the beginning. How do we fix it from step one? Yeah. And to to go back on what I was saying before about the, the, the immigrants coming across the border and all that kind of stuff, I don't want to sound cold on, to, on all this, where I'm talking about what is the role of the government, right? But at the same time, we have a role as individuals. And if the government gets out of our pockets, then the individuals can raise up and invest their time and energy and their money really into causes that they truly believe in. You know what I mean? Like there is charities that take care of, uh, that take care of animals and animal shelters, right? There's charities that give food and backpacks to, to children for, to go to school. You know, there's charities that like my, my healthcare, like my healthcare is a, a Christian sharing program. And I make a donation to this charity once a month. And if I need something like I've gotten injured before, and then I sit, reach out to the charity, Hey guys, I got hurt. And it's basically like health insurance, but it's, but it's, not an insurance company. It's just a nonprofit that, hey, you make donations to this and when you need help, you put in a claim and if everyone agrees on it, they'll they'll send your send funds to help you pay for that. Like, you know, we do this stuff with the service dogs. So there's there's millions of charities out there that are doing amazing things. And there's companies and there's people who have no problem pouring their money and their volunteer hours into those charities to make a positive impact. But that's a productive thing. That's like a, that's a good thing, right? And people will do it 
given the opportunity. But when we have people who are now tell you like, you don't have a choice in the matter, we're going to make you go to work because the government decided that they want to handle this cause that is not part of what their role or responsibility is. That's not fair to the everyday person going to work because what they're, the government's telling you what is important versus you making what's again, most important for your family, your community and all that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? No, it does. It does. It does. And I just, and I really enjoy these conversations because you know, you're just getting all these different perspectives. So you fought yeah. for this country, you know what I mean? And now you continue to train citizens, law enforcement, and we'll get into that. Hopefully we've got time to actually yeah. you know, get to the meat and potatoes of that area. But but yeah, the, this is what it's about. Having conversations, you know, sharing ideas, understanding, you know, things that you're not educated in. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not big on on policy and politics and that kind of thing. It's, it's more, more of a, a humanistic lens, but the more... The more of these discussions that we have, the more each of us understands, the more empowered we are to make good decisions. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Okay. So, well, I want to get to your actual career. Um, and again, not delving in, in details or anything, but one of the things I always ask people, because again, the, the British, the Americans, the Australians, us civilians... W- we get a polarizing report, just like we've been discussing, on war as well. You get a very pro, you know, as I always say, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out view. And then you get a very anti, you know, Vietnam baby killer view. And so it's important, I think, for us to hear, you know, the stories of what the men and women on the ground actually saw. So what I always ask was, regardless of, you know, what initially sent you there and like you said 9-11 was very fresh so that was a pretty obvious one for you were there any moments that kind of stuck with you when you first deployed that you saw firsthand some of the horrific you know things and some of the 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 evil that you were combating and i think it's very important people understand as well that this is happening to the people of that country the iraqis or the afghanis so were there any kind of like moments that stuck with you from from that lens Um, not so much, but my, my time was actually a little different. So this, the, the jobs, the missions that I got sent on were actually tracking the terrorist cells from Europe into the Middle East. So I personally actually was never deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, which is pretty interesting doing two deployments with the SEAL team. Um, we're doing, we're tracking down war criminals and from the current war and then from previous wars back to the like Bosnia and Kosovo uh, conflict, that oh, whole really? war. So there's people who are still running around Europe um, and other places that, that are, were people in charge of that, that, uh, that we're still tracking down and capturing. And then the money that's coming in and the weapons that are going from Europe across into uh, the Middle East, we're tracking, surveilling, capturing those those people, uh, and basically helping the intel community build those packet build build the intel packages. So I did a lot of scout reconnaissance work and um, 
half of it was in the field and, you know, camouflaged up and stalking up on targets and, and gathering information. And then the other half was more of what you would imagine like a CIA operative doing where it's in plain clothes, you know, sometimes by myself, maybe with a couple other guys and doing operations in, in cities and urban environments, you know, low profile, uh, again, tracking people, gathering intel, building intel packages, snatch and grabs uh, to where we'd capture people and, and who are on certain lists or whatever. So for me personally, uh, my experience is a little bit different, you know, and um, so there's, I didn't have, I don't have necessarily anything that was like super traumatic for me to witness, you know, um, as much as more so just having a lot of friends over the years that I went through training with, that I served with as a team, you know, getting killed, whether it was in, you know, the conflict or even in training, you know what I mean? So you've, it was a lot of that. So with so what's interesting about your journey, and again, that, the funny thing is when you research, you you know, you got full spectrum warrior and all that stuff, but there's not a lot about you out there. So um, yeah, that was my failing on learning about your um, you know career in the SEAL teams. Yeah. What was it like though? Because it's very unique for that particular role, working on your own. I mean, again, that that skill set usually is the same in the fire department you know we have these men and women around us we're a part of a team we you know we don't go into a fire unless you've got at least one person with you um you know what was that like as far as overcoming the fear and and just operating as a single person in you know possibly a, a hostile or a, a you know environment that you were in yeah it's i mean it's sometimes it's uh it kind of has like that oh crap factor you know what i mean where you're like I'm, it's really just me out here, you know, and some of the guys that we're in the groups that we're tracking and surveilling were on the list for committing genocide. So from one aspect, you're like, all right, dude, it, you know, I'm not in like some major combat conflict right now, but at the same time, you're like, if I screw this up, and they actually snatch. So snatch would be like our, like in layman's term would be like kidnapping, but we're not kids anymore. We're adults. So it's called a snatch and grab, <laughs> right? If I get snatched, you know, the interrogation that's going to happen to me is going to be really bad. They'll probably, they'll have no, you know, qualms killing me. They're wanted for genocide. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're so not too it's not, it's not like it's going to be uh a walk in the park. We're just dealing with some low level, you know, knucklehead you know, kind of people like these, this is the top of the totem pole. So with, with that, there was, um, a sense of seriousness in, in what you're doing. And then there was just a lot of, there was also a lot of creativity on how do you make this work? So this was before we had, you know, all the smart technology tech boom stuff. So I'm, in a warehouse and in a makeshift lab, you know, taking old school video cameras and doing pin those pin, um, those like pin size lenses that are on a wire and like running them through backpack straps and, you know, making improvised like surveillance equipment 
in in a in a warehouse, just like grabbing stuff from stores and and making it into things, and you know, uh, trying to get creative with how can we get in there and get the videotape of of X, Y, and Z in this location. Um, you know, getting you know tracking devices on vehicles and you know getting in and doing that without getting seen and then tracking the vehicles and tracking locations getting into the site and getting on scene getting stalking up close enough to target to get the photographs of people making interactions and doing handoffs and all that kind of stuff getting license plates getting building intel packages so there was a lot of of that kind of stuff that um you know, going through all the scout reconnaissance because I'm, I'm went through all the sniper training. You know what I mean? So, in sniper training, it's you're a scout reconnaissance sniper. So, although these were technically like sniper missions, it was much more heavy on the scout reconnaissance aspect of it of building these intel packages. So there's a lot of there was a lot of independence in that, and there was a lot of creativity and. Um, you know, figuring out a way to make it work. Um, so it was cool. It was, I mean, it was a, a great experience. And the only reason I I ran into a medical condition, that's why I'm not there anymore. You know what I mean? So I did two deployments. And, um, you know, after my second deployment, I had thrown, it was actually while I was on deployment, I threw a major blood clot and had a 96% blockage just outside my uh, inside my brachial artery right between my first rib and my collarbone, just wow. inches away from my heart. And, um, and that was, that's basically what took me out. So it, they were never able to fix it because it's still there. They tried to fix it with a surgery, which left me with nerve damage in my arm. Um, and then because the clot is actually still there, the Navy won't pass my jump and dive physical anymore because of the pressure changes. They think, I mean, at this point it's probably just a chunk of, plaster mm-hmm. you know what i mean i don't think it's going anywhere at this point but um but still as far as the the navy's concerned they're very strict on their jump and dive physical and they're like if you can't dive and you can't jump then you can't stay in the seal teams you're not operational you know what i mean so that was kind of like where my would have been potentially career kind of got short changed and then got out, moved back to New Jersey, became a personal trainer and kind of went switched gears and then eventually onto the whole full spectrum warrior side of the house. So with that transition, that, that's something that, again, the topic comes up a lot, whether it's a police officer, you know, getting hurt, can't do the job anymore, whether it's a fire chief retiring, you know, a lot of us identify with the role that we did, the position that we were in. Um, you didn't even have a chance to kind of mentally say, I'm ready. You know, you had this this uh, event and this had been incredibly healing for you. This was, as you said, you know, the the direction that focused all your energy. What was that transition out like for you? It was it was a tough transition because I like again, I wasn't planning on getting out. Like I found what I thought was my calling. And, you know, as if, if being, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say like, I'm like the greatest Navy SEAL. I'm not the most heroic Navy SEAL. I don't have the biggest freaking rack of, you know, achievements and, and all this stuff. Cause again, I'll, I did six years. So, but as far as being a, like the job, if, if a, if being a SEAL was a sport, I was good at it. If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, 
I was good at shooting. I was athletic. I didn't drink. I wasn't getting in, in trouble anymore. Like I wasn't doing the dumb shit really anymore. You know, um, when it came to diving, when it came to jump, like all the stuff we were doing, I was, I was good at it. And it was like, I found what it was that I was going to do. I was like, this is awesome. I'm, I'm in the place where I need to be at the same time as I, as I was there, you know, I, I was also as the job sharpened me, there was other aspects of my life that were, that were getting worse, essentially. Like my heart was closing up. My heart was getting, uh, hardened. You know what I mean? And from that aspect, I was going into a worse and worse place. I was, I was a, uh, a young man with a ton of energy who had found like the job that was right for me. You know what I mean? But I was also a damaged person. You know what I mean? Surrounded by a lot of other damaged people, you know, and there was still a lot of bad decisions that were happening. There were just different types of bad decisions. You know what I mean? And, um, and when I say that, I mean, you know, you gotta, you gotta, we, I did, we didn't have like spiritual mentors and stuff like that at that time. You know what I mean? So the humor was getting darker and not that we were actually, not that we were like going out and like committing, you know, like crimes and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But like maybe one of the ways that you cope with the stress and fatigue and, and the things that you see or, uh, preparing for what you may see. Like a lot of it comes out with like a really dark humor. You know what I mean? You probably see that in the fire department, you know, people compartmentalize a lot of the EMTs I know and paramedics I know have a really dark sense of humor, their way of coping with all the tragic, horrific things they see with car accidents and all that stuff. So, you know, my, my heart was kind of like closing up and, and I remember being in a position to where there was, some op- there was an operation I was supposed to do where I was supposed to, um, if this one guy showed up, I was supposed to take him out. And I to get into this position, I had to go through what was an old minefield to get there. So I go in, I get on target, make it through the minefield with a couple other guys. I'm the lead sniper on this on this operation. I'm in position. Dude shows up and we get told to stand down essentially. And, uh, I'm like, this dude is wanted for genocide. He's standing right there. I just crawled through a minefield. Like (laughs) I can get him. Mm -hmm. And the thing of it was where we were, we couldn't take credit for it. So if the operation had gone through one of the local police forces, would have to come in right afterwards as if they did it. And then we leave and it's never reported that we were there kind of thing, yeah. right? So in that, there's people who are on the inside who leak the information, tip him off, and he leaves. So come back, I'm super pissed off, you know, had to go through the freaking minefield again to get out. A couple of days later, they're like, hey, we need you to go back. The they're they're 
we want you to do the, the mission again. And they think he's coming back to this cabin. And I'm like, are you serious? You know, so go through it again, get back into position, you know, and I can same, same thing happens. But I just remember coming back and getting back to the warehouse and I was like throwing stuff and kicking things and I was so pissed off and I was mad that I didn't get to shoot this guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's something to be said with a, with a maturity level there or where, like where my heart was, it was like, okay, your job was to go in and if they say don't do it, don't do it. And from a professional standpoint, I didn't. But I was mad that I wasn't able to. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that says something about where your where your heart is at that time. And um, before that happened, you know, I had got like just where I was in a spiritual place and in, in a in a heart space. You know, I have tattoos of the devil's hands on my ankles, like dragging me down in the hell. You know what I mean? And that's what I felt like like the my although I didn't believe in God at the time I was still connected enough that, you know, I had a tattoo that symbolized the counter of God, you know, basically, you know, dragging my soul down. And that's just kind of like where I felt spiritually at the time, you know, that like this darkness was kind of taken over me and taking over my heart. Um, and <clears throat> so when I transitioned out of the military, I was mad because I felt like my career had been stolen, that the job that I had had been stolen. Um, what I kind of came to grips with later on my spiritual walk was I found that you had a teenager who was just in pure chaos and needed to go through his crucible to learn who he was and whose he was and prove his own self-worth to go through some of these things and be tested and all this stuff. And I believe now that the, the clot was essentially like a divine intervention. And some people will say it's due to a freaking blood clot. <laughs> you know what I mean? But literally I was doing all these operations that I'm telling you about the whole time with this blood clot. I was, I was doing for three and a half months doing these operations doing this scout reconnaissance stuff, carrying all the gear and doing everything with this giant clot in my arm. And my arm had swollen up so much that I couldn't touch the left side of my face with my left hand. So you were feeling the symptoms as you were. Oh yeah. Working my nickname, it. my nickname on deployment was Hellboy <laughs> because I had this one giant arm. Like I literally could not do this. My armpit was inside out. It was so swollen and everyone just said, Hey dude, suck it up. We got a mission to do. Suck it up. We're here. We're not. We can't go to the military base because we're here. You know, on a, it's a it's a top secret kind of mission. You know what I mean? And uh, we can't just go to the doctor because we're not supposed to be here. Like, just suck it up. So we sucked it up for three and a half months. And when we came back off of that, all the doctors were like, "What do you mean you didn't come see us? Like, are you out of your mind? Like." All it would have taken was one little thing for a piece of that clot to break off and you would have had an aneurysm and died. So doing all that stuff that SEALs do for three months, three and a half months with this giant 96% blockage clot sitting there right next to my heart, right? And it never broke. So there's all these other things and we could talk for hours on the on that whole 
path of of like all the different you know layers of the of the spiritual walk but where i kind of came to grips with the change was when i realized you know look the the seal being a seal isn't my identity and some people laugh when i say that because my company's full spectrum we're and i'm still <laughs> doing all that stuff right but it, that just kind of came that wasn't my plan I, like that wasn't me trying to hold on that was just how god's worked it out for me but <clears throat> the um the i explain it like this you have a river and you have a, a miner with his tray doing like the sifting for the for gold okay and you go into the seal training and it's like the seal the seal training doesn't the miner in the river that little pan doesn't make gold they put shovels of gravel and dirt and sand in the in the little pan and as he sifts through it everything else comes out except the gold he didn't make the gold he identified it now the gold is gold right the miner doesn't make it into the jewelry. The miner identifies it, separates it from all the other stuff, and takes that gold to someone who actually makes the jewelry or makes whatever you want to make out of gold. That person molds it and sculpts it. So the military training and all that kind of stuff within the SEAL team molds the gold, but the gold was the raw material. So the individual, you, me, we're the raw material the coaches we have in our life, the coaches and the people that we have in our life can mold us so that we can be the best of, of who we are. But the SEAL team didn't make me that. The attributes that I had to be gold, right? If we were going to use that as a reference, those attributes that I had allowed me to perform at that level. And when I recognize that I still have all these things and if I could compete at that level, and do that job, I could do whatever the hell it is I want to do. If I take those same core principles that allowed me to succeed in that in that arena, I could take those and apply them wherever I else I want to and succeed there as well. You know, and that's and and with that, that's basically what I started to do. And that didn't happen, you know, immediately. This was like a this is like a process. But each time, you know, I became further along in my spiritual walk, I became more at ease or more okay with the fact that that was a chapter of my life and that chapter was there. It was important. It was every chapter in a book is an important chapter in the book. If you take one chapter out, the book doesn't make sense. So each thing is important. So that chapter was important, but but now I'm on a new chapter. I'm on a new mission. There's a new calling for this one specific portion of my life where I'm at now, you know, so that was, that was a hard transition at first. There was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of, like, I felt I was, it was stolen from me, you know, and then about a year or two later is when I kind of came into a more of an enlightenment stage of, of where I had an idea of what actually happened and, and came to, to terms with that and was able to start working on that next phase so the the panning for gold analogy I absolutely love and i think you know that seeing yourself as a piece of gold 
One thing that I found my personal journey, you know, I found myself at a strange crossroads. Um, we talked about my last department and you know why, why I transitioned. Um, but then I had a realization that the mission hadn't changed. Just you know, the avatar had changed. I was James, the firefighter paramedic. Well, now I'm still trying to do something good in the world. It just looks different now. I'm sitting in front of amazing people and, you know, people over the world can tap into it and, you know, training first responders at the the CrossFit gym that I train at. So still doing the same mission, but in a different way. You have mentioned, you know, your faith and, and finding Christianity quite a bit. So tell me about that. You were, you know, as you said, not believing in God. You were this turbulent childhood. You focused into this career that was suddenly snatched from you so what was that walk into your own personal faith and then lead us from that point on into um your current project so when i got out i I moved back to new jersey and i was engaged at the time and i was reluctant to go back to new jersey but the girl i was engaged to was uh from my hometown and her family her and my family all kind of like like, there's no reason to be in Virginia Beach anymore. You're not in the SEAL teams. Like, just come home, you know? And I was like, damn, every, every, you know, it's one of those things just kind of, the whole family, both families are kind of, you know, on me. Why are you staying in Virginia Beach? Come back and be an architect. Come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I came back and I, at this time, I didn't know what I was going to do. Okay. And in between that, this is a whole nother side topic, but like, in between me getting out and and moving back to New Jersey that that time frame i actually went with two friends and we rode bicycles across country and did a made it into a fundraiser and we rode from San Diego to Virginia Beach and we raised probably about $80,000 for college scholarships for the for the children of some of my fallen friends and um and it was a huge monumental task it took just over two months and we finished that. And I remember just like, I feel like we had done so much. And at the same time, I felt like I did so little. Um, so there was still this like huge hole, you know what I mean? Like there's this emptiness there still. And we were, at the end of it, we should have been super excited. But to me, like, so just doing works, just thinking that you're going to go do good things and that's going to fix you is, is not true you know what i mean um but that happened in between me moving back to uh to new jersey i get to new jersey and i'm there and i'm like man i just don't know what i'm gonna do and i started working as a personal trainer uh before moving back i started teaming i teamed up with like some sports nutrition company and i was selling some of their vitamins just to make a little extra money. And this, like I brought with me from Virginia into New Jersey with my personal training clients. And there was some guys who were uh, businessmen that were giving me some advice on, on all this uh, stuff, just getting out of the military. And I was looking at, I was looking at how they lived their lives, their relationships that they had. And, it was just so much different than what I was used to seeing. You know what I mean? Like the guys in the military, the SEAL teams have like an 80, 90% divorce rate. You know, um, 
I'm used to seeing a lot of dudes on their off time doing a lot of alcohol. Uh, just the way their lifestyle was that I was used to seeing now as like a young adult, the lifestyle I was used to seeing the way these guys lived was completely different and they were really successful. They seemed really happy. Their, their marriages and their families seemed intact. And I was like, what is it that these guys are doing? That's so different. And I kind of started taking more and more mentorship from them and to the cliff note version would basically be like the, their driving factor was their faith. And then when I found out that their faith was what was that cornerstone in their, in their life, I got pushed away. Like the devil pulled me back and I got really like I was pushing back against it. I'm like, this is bullshit. I don't want anything to do with this. You guys are just trying to trick me into be a born again Christian, you know, uh, like you almost got me, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And and I like pull away. And then I, as I was away, I just started thinking on it again. And I just started thinking about it. And it was just like, but man, there's so much of the stuff that they've said to me over the last like year or two is just so right. It makes sense. Why am I pushing back so hard on this? And really the only reason I was pushing back on it because it was faith-based but it was true. You know what I mean? And there was no de denying the fact that what they were saying was true. So eventually I came to terms and I came forward and, and basically I started to get on that spiritual path. And as soon as I did, all of a sudden it was like I had a mask on, you know, um, and there, there was just like clarity it was like, let's say you had a mask, like goggles, and the goggles had like kind of a foggy lens and there was like 10 lenses deep, you know, with like those dirt biker lenses where they like the tearaways, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, let's say they were all dirty, you know what I mean? Like when you tore it off, you didn't get, in, uh, wasn't fully clean. Like the next one was still dirty too. But all of a sudden things started making sense and it was like you peeled off one layer and you're like, oh my gosh, it's a little clearer. And I started seeing things and I started connecting the dots of all these things that had happened in my life where I kept going, oh yeah, you know, craziest thing happened or yeah, it was just by circumstance or you know, it just kind of worked out that way or something was just telling me. And then I started to realize like God had been calling me and trying to talk to me this entire time and I just wasn't getting it. You know, here I thought I was alone this whole time. And, and I was trying to be communicated with and I kept going, ah, and pushing it away. It was like having a radio, like an old school dial radio. And it's like where you're, the music, all the musics of all the stations is there. But whatever you dial, like it's all hitting that antenna. But where you dial it is what you're, what you're hearing. And it was like, I was in between stations just in that static and then I was kind of like getting to where you just kind of get one station or maybe you're getting in that weird spot where you're kind of getting two stations at the same time. You know what I mean? So it was like all of a sudden it was just like it was getting a little bit clearer, a little bit clearer, a little bit clearer until I was like, there's the message. You know what I mean? And then when that happened, it kind of started to get things on uh, like a fast track, like things in my life I became okay with. You know, things that happen, I, I learned from them. There, I, I'm just trying not to get like too down any one rabbit hole. 
But that's where I started getting clarity in, in all of that and starting to be okay with where I was in my life and okay with, with who I was and, and what I had done and where I was going kind of thing. You know what I mean? It was like a, like hitting the refresh button. Um, so that was kind of like the cliff notes version on that without getting too labored on any one story. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's important. I mean, I've had people from all different faith backgrounds. I'm sure I've had some people that, you know, don't have any, um, but it's an important part because it's definitely one of those things that's very healing to a lot of people. You know, I mean, I, I, I guess mine is a non-denominational faith if you want to classify it, but yeah. absolutely, I talk to God every day, yeah. you know, and, and I see, you know, that purpose as we talked about earlier, even, you know, when it sounded political, it isn't, it's like, there's that driving element of good, of helping people, of, of making people better, you know, yeah. that I think is coming from, from a place, you know, I think, I think it's kind of arrogant to think that this is it, that yeah. there was a big explosion and then a bunch of monkeys were walking around and then that yeah. was it, you know what I mean? And people, so, people think it's arrogant to say that God spoke to me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, oh, like God's going to speak to you. Well, God's starting to speak to all of us. He loves all of us. Why wouldn't he speak to you? Why wouldn't he speak to me? You know what I mean? If we're created in his image, we're the image bearer. Why wouldn't he gave his son for us? Why wouldn't he want to talk to you? Why wouldn't he want to have a relationship? You know what I mean? And it's interesting because you're here and we're sitting in, in my dining room. So I told you about the tattoos on my ankles, yeah. right? Of the, of the hands pulling me down. So years later, and this is the crazy thing, because like things like this just keep happening. Later on, doing full spectrum warrior, doing the training, doing the dog stuff. I have a buddy who is training a dog. Something happens in his life. He needs to go deliver this dog to Colorado, but he can't. Calls me. There's some things that I had going on. One of the the training trips got postponed because of circumstance for the clients. And I'm like, hey, dude, I can actually go out to Colorado and deliver that dog now. I had, I had some people cancel. If you want, I'll go out there. And he's like, dude, that would be awesome. It's a lifesaver. Like I've been trying to get these guys, their dog for a while and nothing was lining up. I'm not going to be able to get out there. I got to get these guys, their dog. So I grab this dog. I fly to Colorado, go into Denver, go up into the mountains outside of Denver, working with these guys, working with his family, getting this, you know, family protection dog, you know, all set up training with them. And we get talking about faith and all that kind of stuff. And he was asking some questions about my time in the military. And I told him about this, the dark, the dark stage, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And in the conversation came up those tattoos, you know what I mean? And I just, I bring those up because I'm like, it's a, to think where your head is at or your heart and head is at to get a tattoo of the devil's hands, dragging you in the hell. Like it's a permanent tattoo. I mean, I could get it removed, but like, I don't know what the hell I was thinking at the time, but the the crazy thing about it was as I'm talking to this, like you just see him and his wife's eyes just get huge. And I just think their their eyes are huge because they're like, this dude got the devil's hands tattooed on his ankles. He's like really nice Christian people. And here I'm telling him this stuff. And they just kind of look at each other and he's like, honey, could you go downstairs and get that painting? And I'm like, this is odd. So he's like, yeah. I'm like, what are they talking about? So I keep talking and, and whatever. She goes downstairs and she comes back up and he's uh he's like, I got this painting when I when I was in college. Someone gave it to me. And I it was it was fitting for me at a time and 
you know, I just didn't really feel like it was calling to me anymore. And I was going to give it away. And God had just told me like, don't give it away. Just hold on to it. And he, and he was like, I don't know why. And they had him and his wife had talked about it. Like, I don't know why, but God just doesn't want us to give this. They has a bad feeling about giving this painting away. And like, we don't want to give it away. And God just said to him, you'll know when the time is right. And so years go by. They have this, this painting in their basement, sitting in like a closet for like 10 years. Right. And that's this picture here. And it's a picture of God's hand lifting someone out of, out of hell, like raising them up. And it says resend. And underneath the person are all these hands reaching up, grabbing at him, trying to all the sin, trying to grab at him to pull him back down. And if you look at that, it's like money and this and that, and there's all the different types of hands, all the different things. But it's like, you go, wow, that's coincidence. Maybe it's coincidence. Maybe it's coincidence that they didn't, that they didn't throw that out or just give it to someone else and had it sitting in their house for 10 years when they are huge active in the church community. They're like, and every time they were going to give it away, they're like, no, this isn't right yet. It's not the right person to give it to. And my buddy was supposed to go deliver the dog. And originally I couldn't go. I had clients Mm -hmm. and those clients switched the dates and I could go. And then we just happened to be talking like that conversation came up. So it's, Ever since, there's just been tons of things like that that have happened that have been like, how many clues do you need? You know what I mean? Like, how many times are you going to say, oh, this is coincidence? Or, you know what I mean? So, in my opinion, God is working. God is trying to talk to us and communicate to us. And he sends signs and things like that. And we have these uh, spiritual breakthroughs. And each time you have a breakthrough, for me personally, I look back now with perspective over past things in my life and you go, man, um, I just got to trust the plan, dude, because this was all part of the plan. Even us being out here on this property right now, which is beautiful by the way, the, yeah, we have 55 acres out here. We built our own private training shooting range and we've got an obstacle course and a gym and all this stuff. We're out here in the middle of the woods, but this came together because I tried to start a full spectrum warrior training gym in downtown Orlando. And I got the investors behind it. I got the money together. I got this warehouse and then the city strongholded me and did not allow me to get a, my, after they told me I could do it, they then strong armed me into a position to where they wouldn't let me open up the gym in Orlando. And they said, you'd probably be better off in some place like Lake County. That's more your kind of people. And I'm like, what do you mean my kind of people? (laughs) Right. But in that time, the real estate market made a shift and I actually made my investors when we sold that warehouse, I made them just just about $120,000 flipping the warehouse with the renovations that we did and all that stuff. So that whole year, I like wanted to go smash in the, the county's door and go beat the crap out of everyone in that office for like playing games with me. And then afterwards, now we have this awesome property and this is so much better for what we wanted to do anyway, but this was out of my price range. If I didn't have that warehouse and it didn't go to where I could flip the warehouse, make the extra money, take that money, roll it into this property, it would have never happened. You know what I mean? But for a year I was mad and then I get out here and now I'm laughing at myself. 
You know what I mean? And like, ah, I don't know why I don't just trust the plan. You know what I mean? But you constantly have these, these breakthroughs and things like that. But so I used to always, you know, chalk things up as that was coincidence. And then as my girlfriend's grandmother says, God always talks to you through coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. I had it just a, I mean, different kind of anecdote, but I left Anaheim, the department I loved for my family. Um, kind of like your early story. As soon as I moved back to Florida, um, I ended up getting divorced. You know, the, the, there were reasons that, uh, you know, were on the other side, but that's for another conversation. But anyway, so I wanted to go back. And it literally went from them having this clause where for three years, if you left in good standing, you could literally walk right back into your job. And then um, it was around 2008, all the hiring freezes happened. And they opened their doors at like three years and three months. And they're like, no, sorry, you're going to have to retest. Oh, and by the way, we might not accept you anymore because you weren't Florida. I mean, you weren't California certified originally. So again, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? You know, but then fast forward. I mean, it wasn't a fun few years, but ultimately I never would have met my wife now. And, you know, and I probably wouldn't have started the podcast. So when you think you're banging your head against a brick wall and you think this is wrong, just submitting to it you know just trusting the plan whatever your you know uh, whatever you label your own particular faith it's the same thing god yeah. the universe whatever yeah. you know we are monkeys grabbing onto a you know rock flying through the sky so <laughs> we can't make things happen on the grand scale but again i think if your purpose is true if you're trying to do good things in the world trust it it'll yeah. happen yeah brilliant all right well then Full Spectrum Warrior, tell me how you got into that. Because I'm, I'm, I think it's quite interesting. A lot of the people that I know that, that also teach, you know, weapons training and, and, you know, defense tactics and that kind of thing come more from a deployed to the Middle East background. You had a, a very different experience. So you probably had a lot more, you know, of the kind of situational, situational awareness element. The, you know, you weren't in a war zone. A lot of times you were in regular countries everyone else was oblivious to the fact there was a genocidal maniac living amongst them so tell me about what made you um start full spectrum warrior and tell me about the unique kind of lens that you have for people that come to your classes so when i got out of the military um again i didn't really know what i was going to do you know um i moved back to new jersey like we talked about and i became a personal trainer and at the time um, I was, I started a kettlebell program. So I became a personal trainer. I started a kettlebell program, made a DVD series and was selling that. Uh, and at first <clears throat> it was people, I had people from the hometown who, who wanted to come train with me because they heard, uh, I was a Navy SEAL and I had a bunch of clients and I was, I was training a bunch of people. And it was one of those things that very quickly I realized at first the training was all about me and me trying to show off like how crazy the workouts were and all this. And I just was like beating down clients. And very quickly I realized that this isn't, this isn't working. You know what I mean? Um, these people aren't going to be Navy SEALs. These people aren't getting ready to go into the training and so over a short amount of time, I started to figure out that one, I was still at this point way, way too intense. 
like I'm super calm, rich now. It's funny, you know, my, <laughs> my girlfriend thinks I have a lot of energy. I'm like, dude, I am so mellow compared to what I used to be. So I, I feel like I'm extremely mellow, but <clears throat> compared uh, to how I remember me. But the when I when I came into the the personal training aspect of it, I realized, dude, I'm having I'm. I'm being way too intense, not only in my training, but in my way of communicating with people. So I'm at the gym and I'm walking in, in between clients and I'm reading books like how to win friends and influence people. And all the other coaches are kind of laughing at me. And, uh, they're like, dude, why are you reading that book? Like they're making jokes about me reading like personal self-help books and all that stuff. And I was just looking at them. I'm like, Hey dude, what happens when your client realizes they know how to do a push-up now? Then what? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, whatever. So <laughs> it goes into, started reading these books and um, got my per- people skills in check, got my communication skills in check, started applying some of the things I was reading in these books. And what happened was, all the trainers at the gym were helping people get fit, right? But the the experience that they were having was different. And what I found is I started to build relationships with the clients. And as I started to build these relationships with the clients, and it wasn't about the Rich Graham show anymore. And it wasn't about what I could do or the fact that I was a SEAL. Because it's like, okay, cool. You come and you ever meet someone who's like a, like a professional football player? or they played college football and they're like, oh, dude, that's awesome. You played college football? That's crazy. That's so cool. Now what? Okay, now what? How does that help <laughs> me whatsoever? What is that? That's completely irrelevant. Cool, mm-hmm. high five, awesome, good job. And that's really what it is. And I, and and it's like you, you get out of the military and you're like, oh, dude, you did whatever. Oh, that's cool. Okay, well, now what? What does that mean for me? How does that affect my life whatsoever? Oh, it doesn't? Cool. I'm not interested. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it gets their attention. They go, oh, you were a Navy SEAL. That's really cool. Wow. That must have been hard. Yeah, it was. Cool. All right. Now what? Well, how does that help you? So the the Navy SEAL thing, really, once you leave the military, like it, it's a, like it gets attention, but I realize that that doesn't mean crap. What matters is I have to get my clients results and it's not about what I do. It's about how I can communicate with them, how I can coach them, how I can set up their programs, giving them what they need. And as I started to do that with the personal training, my personal training side of the house was starting to take off really well. And it became, you know, a a pretty, I say successful personal trainer because I was able to do personal training full-time. Like it was a full-time income for me. So, um, as I was doing that, I had clients who then start going, well, Hey Rich, you were a sniper, like, and a seal, like, could you, could you train my, my wife, how to shoot our revolver? We have owned a revolver and I don't think we've ever even shot the thing. I'd be like, yeah, man, I can do that. So I started helping a couple of my clients, you know, with a little, bit of shooting here and there and one person hey can you come like do some like take me through a walk of my home like if someone were to break in you know 
you know, what do you think I should do? And, you know, just come over and do an at-home personal training session. And we just talk about a little bit of tactics for their home or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. And then some of the guys I was tie boxing with were police officers and they invited me out to sit in on one of their shooting classes and just observe and just give my two cents. And then that turned into, hey, Rich, can you come run a shooting class for us? Hey, Rich, we got we got 50 police officers from the tri-state area, SWAT guys. We have some ATF dudes, some DEA, some state troopers that we're bringing together. Um, and we'd like you to come teach a pistol class. I'm like, yeah, I'll teach a pistol class. And at that time, I was just doing it for fun because it was enjoyable. I was making my money personal training. And <clears throat> as that happened, I started to then get requested. Like, I never even, like, I wasn't, pushing this stuff. Like people were reaching out to me. Hey, Rich, can you, can, uh, I had some clients who came from Florence, South Carolina, who came all the way up to New Jersey to come do some firearms training that I was <clears throat> going to be doing. And then they invited me to come down and they got a group together for me to go to South Carolina. And I went down there and did a class in South Carolina. And <clears throat> what happened was at this point, I was still a full-time personal trainer and I was just doing it like once a month, two times a month on the weekends, I was running a shooting class just because people were asking me to, and it was fun to do. And I still wasn't planning on personal training being my full-time income forever. I was just trying to figure out what do I do next? And then for the next year and a half, this kind of like gained momentum. And uh, I, soon after that, I basically moved to Florida. When I got to Florida, I lost my personal training business. What brought you here? So I had just got married and... My wife at the time had a government job and she was making good money. And that job was getting moved to uh, Virginia. And she really wasn't excited about moving to Virginia. And it was like, okay, well, if you're losing your job and you have to start over and find a job, I haven't really found the job that I want, that I'm going to do yet. Is New Jersey really where we want to be? Because it's super expensive. The laws suck. Like, I don't think this is where we want to be long-term. This is like a dead-end state. So then we started looking at Florida and Texas. And she was like, between Florida and Texas, I prefer tropical over uh, desert. So we came to Florida and moved to the Orlando area because it was central. It wasn't, it was an upcoming city. It wasn't a place where people already had made their money. Like down South Florida, it's like people retire from where I just came from down there they already made the money they made the money up north and now they live down there so i went to central florida just as kind of like a place to kick it off but once i got down here i lost all my personal training clients so i lost that income so i was doing all different things to try to make ends meet as far as making money and at this point i was still doing some of those shooting classes once or twice a month and i was like dude you know what uh i can make a little extra money you know with these still and then that went on for a few years of me bouncing around, doing some stuff with that sports nutrition company still and, you know, um, and whatnot and doing all this sales. And I had these business leaders who were coaching me in that. And I just started thinking, I was like, dude, you know what? If I just took all the information that I've learned and actually treated this firearms portion of my business like I treated everyone else's business, like if I took that as seriously and put the time and energy into that, as I did, you know, the sales for these sports nutrition companies, as I did for, you know, uh, these other people that I've worked for, if I put that time and energy into this, 
I could probably make this a successful business. So I just drafted up a business plan and basically just, you know, increased the price, put out, made a website, um, and kind of focused on that for a little bit. And within that, that switch, as soon as I made that decision within the, within the first year, um, I had gone from never making not, not that this is what you should gauge, right? But I had never made a hundred thousand dollars before in a year. And in the first full year that I actually focused on my business, doing this training, uh, with my business plan, I, I made probably 120 to $140,000, not profit, but like the company in sales, you know? And I was like, dude, this can be done, you know? And <clears throat> that was that switch was in 2013, 2014. And I've been doing it full time ever since. And this is, this is where the full spectrum warrior part comes. That's like the business side. Like, how did I wind up in that position? That's kind of like how that played out. But what happened as far as full spectrum warrior goes was, and again, that's why I say it's funny because it was, you know, one of those things where I, I left the SEAL team and once I became okay with my identity not being locked into that, it's crazy how God works because it went from, okay, I'm going to be a personal trainer. I'm going to do these sales. I'm going to do all this stuff. But I've never once spent a single dollar on marketing and advertising. And I just keep getting phone calls. Hey, Rich, can you come teach us this? Can you come do a class for us with this? So it's like, it's been brought back to me, you know? And what a lot of people want to do is they want to do the firearms training and people want to, uh, uh, you have a lot of people who are like, Hey, I want to, I want to shoot like a Navy SEAL. And it's like, okay, well, first off, you know, if I teach you what I learned in the SEAL teams, it's irrelevant because you don't have a team of 16 to 30 guys or eight guys with night vision and body armor and air support and radios and, you know what I mean? Like you're not going to assault a target. So the stuff that I have isn't really relevant for you as a civilian. You know what I mean? Like you defending your home isn't the same as a SEAL team going and doing an assault on a target. They're two totally different things. And that does not apply for basically almost anything you need. So, but if you want to have an idea, like everyone wants the final finished product first. That's just the way it is. You know what I mean? So everyone wants to shoot and run and gun like a Navy SEAL. But what I have to tell them is, look, okay, that's where you want to be. That's the level. That's like where you want to, that's like your goal. But we need to reverse engineer this. So you want to shoot like a Navy SEAL. Okay. So we have to get good at shooting first. Right. And there's a lot more to shooting from, uh, than just shooting accurate and shooting fast. You have to be able to do it under pressure. You have to be able to do it under stress. You have to make good decision-making under stress. Like there's a lot to this. You need to be able to communicate under stress. There's a lot to that and we're going to get to it. But let's take that one step back. So for you, for the everyday American or wherever they are, because I do a lot of work outside of America, but for you defending yourself or your family, what we need to first and foremost understand is there was probably a confrontation that happened 
that deemed you able to actually use a firearm in self-defense. So unlike a military conflict where the bad guy might be 100 yards away, 300 yards away, you know, and you never have to actually interact with each other. If, if, if you were to shoot the bad guy and he's 300 yards away, you don't necessarily have to go over there and do anything. You know what I mean? Theoretically, technically, you know what I mean? Whereas if a dude's stealing your wallet, they're not going to shoot you from 300 yards away to steal your wallet because they need to be right up there in front of you to take your wallet after they shoot you. Right? So the conflict is usually very close. Now, you need to understand that you'll probably be in some kind of fight before you actually transition into a shooting engagement, right? Because of having the reason to use the force. You're not walking around with your gun in your hand. Exactly. You can't walk around brandishing a weapon. So we need to know how to fight. This is our combatives. Well, your combatives aren't going to work that well if you're out of shape and you don't know how to move and you're not strong and you have no, you know, fitness, So we go to our fitness and our strength training. Our fitness and our strength training are only going to be so effective consistently if we have a good diet and we have a good recovery and and lifestyle, right? And you're only going to make good decisions if you're not a total meathead and you grow as an individual and you can make sound decisions and you have good discipline, right? You make the right, uh, you know, game plan and you can be proactive Right, Because none of all those other things will fall into place if you can't even have the the uh like the the follow through the dedication the commitment to your own personal development so that's where we start getting into this full spectrum warrior thing because I had firefighters and police officers that I was working with that were overweight and this and that, and they want me to come teach them they want to shoot as fast as I shoot or they want to run around and do the stuff that that they saw me doing when I'm just out, you know, doing my own training, you know, and be like, dude, I want to, I want to shoot like that. I'd be like, okay, well, the first problem is I'm kneeling behind the car and then I stand up to run over to the next position. You can't go into a kneeling position without putting one hand on your leg, you know, I'm grunting and groaning, getting into kneeling position. So you're worried about shooting fast. There's things that we need to do and we can do them in conjunction, right? But like, there's a bigger picture here that we need to address to get you to where you can be in the position to do that. And that's kind of where full spectrum warrior went from. It was, it was trident fitness. It was a a personal training thing. And the full spectrum warrior was my training philosophy when I was doing that. And I was like, dude, it's, there's all these different aspects that you have to. And I used to, I used to look at it as like the, there's a whole leadership, a personal development side. And I used to draw it out like a wheel. I used to say like, hey, here's each individual aspect of your life we need to focus on and we need to be building on, right? And as you grow in each one of these areas, if this was a wheel and you were to roll it, how would that wheel roll? You know what I mean? If it's all lopsided, it doesn't roll very well. So we, we don't want to overcompensate in certain areas. We need It needs to have a good balance here. And now that same concept is... Uh, symbolized in that in our logo with the circle of swords it just is cooler than the wheel you know (laughs) but um but yeah so that's that's where the 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 whole concept of the full spectrum warrior started to come come about was you know we started training more and more people for their own self-defense and 
and it's a lifestyle. You know what I mean? So all of these things play, all these things play a key role in, in that. And now we can apply tactics. We can apply strategy to it. You know what I mean? Um, and then any one of those aspects you can spend probably more time in than, than another, like everyone's different, like what they're going to put in, in that priority. But then we started just to develop, you know, here's this program and here's all these different areas that we're training in. And, um, and I was traveling all over the country doing these, these seminars, all different topics within that. Right. So I was doing fitness seminars. I was doing the combative seminars, doing a lot of shooting courses. This brought me out of the country. I started getting requests to go to other countries and doing it. So I've trained in Europe. Um, and another funny thing, again, how God works is remember I joined the SEAL teams to help fight the, the drug war. Right. I get out and I'm like, crap. Now what years later, after I get full spectrum, where we're going, I, I get requested to come to Brazil and help them. So I've been working in Brazil now with law enforcement for probably nine years now. Which speaks volumes if they're going to the US to request a certain person to come train Brazilians. I mean, that says a lot. Yeah. So there's, and there's, a, the, and there's guys who have a, a much bigger background than I do. Like I said, you know, I don't bullshit my background. Yeah, I did six years in the teams. There's guys who have done 20. And there's a lot of guys in the military who are really good at the job and they suck at communicating. There's a lot of people who are really good bodybuilders and they suck at communicating. So one of the things that has been um, one of the cornerstones for, for, the, for the company has just been time and time again, I have police departments that, and, and individuals, like I said, I, it's just, I just keep getting phone calls. And I guess for right now this is what God wants me doing because like, there's still a lot of work involved. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of work involved, but the, the feedback is, is that rich, you have a really good way of taking something that has previously been very complicated and you teach it in a way that's easy for guys to learn and guys make tremendous headway when you come and run your classes and then the word gets around and I just keep going from one department to the next. And, and we have the, the program um, that, you know, and that got us to the point to where after doing that traveling around, because I was on the road for probably eight to nine months out of the year. Like when you would actually count up the days that I was traveling on my calendar, I was like, dude, I'm traveling almost just as much as I was when I was in the Navy. I was just constantly on the road doing seminars all over the place. And that's what I was finally like, I need, I need to make a home base. Like this is really fun. And it's exciting for right now, but I can't do this necessarily forever. So that's when we got the place in Orlando. I was going to try to make a home base. And then that rolled into here where we're at out here in the woods with the deep woods place. And, um, and we've, we've had this property now for about four years and we've had the range and all the training sites set up for about two. And now half the training comes here and we do it on the ranch. And now I'm still traveling but now I travel like once a month, maybe twice a month on sometimes, but, um, but the majority of it's coming to here now. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, we've set up an online training university. So for the people who can't get here, we're not going to your town anytime soon. You can train with us on our online training university or the online library. And, um, yeah, that's kind of, the, I don't know. You have any questions on that? No, that was brilliant. It's just really cool hearing, you know, 
how it's kind of metamorphosized from, like you said, Trident Fitness to what this is now. And you hit on a couple of very important points. One, as an Englishman observing, when I first came over here, I saw a lot of very deconditioned people with a huge gun collection. So <laughs> the fitness element, you know, is huge. And then, you know, and I always very careful to say this, our our professions, fire, EMS, law enforcement, the way we do shifts, the sleep deprivation, you know, the the stress, the the more gear they strap onto to especially law enforcement, they're set up for failure in a lot of ways. But the number of people I've had on here that you know, do keep in shape. They're in law enforcement. That do you know train, whether it's you know jujitsu or krav maga or whatever their <clears> chosen <throat> thing is. The deterrent element of that. Those are people that have to go to their sidearm a lot less. You know, yeah. so that interaction between strength and conditioning, and obviously the weapons training, and how that becomes a deterrent and 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 a de-escalation tool in itself is a conversation that needs to be had. But sadly. I mentioned that I, I teach this class in town for free. It, it, the question is like, how do we get these responders into the gyms? How do we get them onto the ranges? And if, yes, the, the departments have to have ownership, but there also has to be ownership of the individual yeah. to seek it out as well. Well, I've, I've been brought in to teach some of the special tactics teams and the um, and the, even, even like this the special... Oh, man, what am I trying to... It's for the fire department, but it's like they're TAC ops. They do like the water recovery and the confined yeah, the, the space. Yeah, teams and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they've, they've brought me in to, to bring the full spectrum work because like I said, like people... What people see on Instagram is all the shooting. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's the part... That's the part... That's the shiny object. It's exciting to watch. But the program the company is much bigger than just shooting. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. So when we come in and I do my courses with, with like the fire departments and the police departments on the full spectrum warrior leadership, right. Or the, you being a full spectrum warrior, right. The shooting for me falls under one, one, one of those swords in the logo is technical skills for someone who's, you know, in the, in the, job frame of you know the shooting is part of their job cool then that's a technical skill but if you're working um in the fire department maybe that's running the running the truck maybe that's running a different aspect of of the scene whatever that technical skill is that's your job to do that falls under technical skills but as you talked about having people be overweight and all that stuff when we talk about our coaching program, as far as building the full spectrum warrior, building the individual, and we put this out in our men's leadership stuff too, is each one of these play on it. Because when you see someone walk in who is has a good diet, why is diet important? One for energy, one for longevity, but also diet. And then let's go to fitness. Let's just take those two swords because they're, they're two of the two of the aspects of the full spectrum warrior, right? Your health and your ability to move. Maybe that's move weight. Maybe that's move yourself, whatever it is. These two aspects right here, if you eat right and you move a lot by default, like with my kettlebell program, it's like our goal and our functional fitness programs. It's like, Hey dude, your body's going to be sculpted. However, your body gets sculpted, right? Don't worry about the shape of it. 
It's a positive side effect, not the main reason. Exactly. So we do our diet, our movement, and our combatives, and by default, you will have a good-looking body, right? You will get a better physique by default. But what happens is when you have a healthy diet and you have good energy, right? And, And part of the health would be your sleep and recovery, right? That aspect of it, like your personal health, then we focus on our, our fitness or our ability to move, okay? When we have our fitness aspect right, then when someone walks into the room and people say, don't judge or whatever, it is what it is, you know, you always have a hurdle. First impressions are real and people judge one another. It is what it is. Every animal in the animal kingdom looks at another one and judges. Like when two male lions walk up, they're looking at each other and they're sizing each other up. It's normal. So if someone walks in and they're they're overweight, I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you're overweight, but this is just the truth of it. Someone's going to look at you and go, they're unfit. And especially if it's a job that requires some kind of fitness level, like being a firefighter. You're imagining this person coming in with all their gear on to run down, up a staircase, up five sets of stairs to come pull you out of an apartment building, you know, and carry them down those stairs. They're like, oh my gosh, they're never going to make it. They're not, they're not going to make it. If you come in to lead other men and you walk in with that kind of physique, the first thing another man looks at you and says, I'd be able to beat that guy's ass. I would outperform him. If I could outperform him, I'm better than him. Convince me that you're that I'm not better than you, right? That's your first hurdle right then and there. You know what I mean? So now this affects your ability to lead. Now you take your health and fitness, you walk in, you have a good physique. Maybe you're a big bodybuilder guy and they're like, yeah, that's a bodybuilder guy. He can't move. He's big, but I'd be able to beat his ass, right? That's, again, and maybe that doesn't even matter for the context of, of, of your guy's relationship. But these are the things that happen subconsciously between between people that we Try society tells us not to have the conversation. This doesn't actually happen. And we could say it's incorrect and it's impolite, but it's actually happening, right? Well, same way that, you know, this whole fat shaming thing is getting in the way of of addressing the obesity epidemic. Exactly. So we can lie to ourselves, but the reality is it is what it is. Now you've taken there, you put in the combatives aspect. Why is combatives important? Because men are protectors and providers, if I can protect and I can provide, right, then what do I have? I have confidence. So now I can walk in with good energy, right? A good physique, right? I'm strong and I know how to fight even to a baseline level. I can have a form of confidence standing in front of other men just as at that aspect of it to begin with. Then you get into the other aspects of it, but each one adds on the other. So something just as simple as that aspect is not just a thing to have that revolves around, you know, being on the shooting range. This revolves around our daily routine and our daily exchange with other people. And that goes back through in our ability to to have good communication skills and team being a student versus a leader and when to be which, you know, um, our faith, our work ethic, our attitude, all these things tie in. And that goes into not being just some meathead who knows how to shoot stuff and beat people up. Right. Because the reality is if you do everything right, you should never have to get there unless you get caught by surprise, you know, and then that comes back into our situational awareness training. You know what I mean? To, well, don't, 
you should be smart to not put yourself in those positions to begin with. Now, again, there's always those caveats to like, you're just in the grocery store. Some dude walks in and just starts shooting it up. You didn't put yourself in a dangerous position. That was not necessarily uncontroll. That was uncontrollable. You just have to be able to respond, you know, but all these aspects of it that we focus on that people that were, that were looking at to make someone into a better, you know, uh, combative shooter it's not just about combative shooting though this is about your your interaction and being effective in your workplace being effective amongst your coworkers, being effective in your peer with your peers um and having confidence and and self-respect uh for your for you at the same time you know what i mean so building you up as an individual so that you can be more effective in all aspects well-rounded full spectrum you know what yeah. i mean so um but yeah, so it's that's what we're doing in a, in a in a nutshell, essentially, I guess. Beautiful. Well, if people want to find out more, where can they go online? So our website's fullspectrumwarriors.com. And then from there, you can find the links. We have our YouTube channel, Full Spectrum Warrior, YouTube channel and Instagram and the other social media stuff. Um, but if you go to fullspectrumwarriors.com, you can basically find all the other stuff from there. Beautiful. Well, I'm going to be taking some classes. Obviously, we were only connected somewhat recently, so I haven't had a chance to yet, but um, I have a lot more work. I did Tim Kennedy's Sheepdog Response awesome. for level one. Amazing. But I would redo level one. <laughs> you know, there was so much to learn. And, you know, um, I'm absolute white belt in, uh, in, um, with a pistol and I wear a blue belt, but it's brand new. So I'm pretty much a white belt in jujitsu too. So I got a lot to learn. Um, so I'll transition to some closing questions. The first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to something we've discussed today or completely unrelated. So there's been a couple, I'll give you a couple good books if I can. Yeah, please. One was a book that I had sitting on my desk or on my shelf that I didn't read for like two or three years. Right. And this was, again, why am I not getting the responses that I want? People suck. All these people are stupid. Right. And it was obviously my attitude coming out of the military was a different type of attitude that wasn't transitioning good into like communicating with the civilian population. Right. So this book was uh, what to say when you talk to yourself. Super cheesy title. That's why I didn't read it for like two years. (laughs) Right. And my one buddy said to me, one of those coaches that I was telling you, one of those business guys are like, hey man, did you read that book yet? And they're like, you're not getting the results that you want because your attitude sucks. They're like, you need to read that book, right? So that book talks about mental programming. And that that book talks about, you know, everything that goes into our head is programming us in the decisions we make, how the actions we take, our attitudes with that are all based on how we program our mind um, through what we're taking in. And after reading that book, I was like, oh my gosh, half the music I'm listening to is holding me back. Half the people I'm listening to are holding me back. Half the shit I'm saying to myself is holding me back. So it's a really good one for that. If you're if you're in an environment where you're trying to figure out how do I become better um, at being a leader, right? A lot of people want to be leaders. And again, you can lead by example or you can dictate. So there's a great book called The 360 Degree Leader and it's written out as the number, The 360 Degree Leader. And that's by John Maxwell. 
And that book talks about leading from whatever position you're in. And part of what we talk about in our Full Spectrum Warrior program is don't don't skip, don't try to shortcut it and bypass the process of learning how to be a student, doing what it is that you learned, and then going into a leadership role or a teaching role. There's a difference between being a teacher and a leader, but like to going into that position to where you are in a leadership role, right? There's a lot of people who um, sometimes they might be like narcissists or whatever, and they just, they want to just control everyone and they want to tell everyone what to do and just bark orders, right? But they think they're leaders, they're not. They're just dictators, right? They got a job and a position at the job that outranks you and they just tell you what to do because, and you have to listen to them. That's not leadership, that's dictatorship, right? So the 360 degree leader tells you uh, or helps teach you how you can be most effective from whatever position you're in within an organization, a family, et cetera. Um, those two are great books. And um, if you have bad people skills, a good communication book is an old school classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's Carnegie, isn't it? Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Yep. Well, then, what about uh, a movie and or a documentary that you love? Can be just a movie, anything. just in general. Yep. I really like the Book of Eli. That one stands out. All right. Uh, that was Denzel Washington, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Good film. All right. So, the next question Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? And again, doesn't have to be pertaining specifically to what we've talked about today. Um,. There's a, from a, from a health and fitness standpoint, there's two guys that I know that are, they really, really live it and they're very adamant about it. One of them is one of our coaches, Greg Mahovich. He's in New Jersey. Brilliant. And then another one is Mike Salemi. I've had Mike on before. Did you? Kettlebell King. Yeah. Yes. He was awesome. I'm going to get him on again. He's fun. He just did a... Just came back from his, I think it was his very first Cambo retreat. Yeah. Um, yeah, awesome conversation. So those guys are both cool. Obviously, you've already had Mike on, but Mike and Greg, they they live, eat, and sleep the uh, that health and fitness lifestyle. You know what I mean? And Greg, Greg is, um, he's the co-author of another program we developed called the Combat Mobility System. And uh, and we worked on that together. And he's an amazing coach. Uh super knowledgeable and um yeah he could probably definitely help beautiful have to make that work then thank you so much all right well then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you what do you do to decompress that is a great question i don't know if i do enough decompression <laughs> you know sleep and decompression are the two things like when i look at my my lifestyle where am i really dropping the ball for my own personal my own personal health is I, and you were talking to my girlfriend about that before, like, I don't, I don't sleep much. Right. So the last year or so I've been really trying to focus on sleeping at least six hours a night. Um, preferably if I can seven, uh, I used to sleep three to four hours a night forever. And, uh, so I'm trying to at least get six, you know, gradually building it up. Um, and what was the other one? Um, Oh, we're talking about decompressing. So yeah, you said and sleep. then decompression. So, like, what do I just do? Like, people ask me, like, what do you just do for fun? And I'm like, man, I just 
I work and I train all the time. But the thing is, I, I do enjoy training, you know, and when, when I was in the, the teams or whatever, we'd get off, we'd finish training all day and I'd go back and I had a couple guys who were really into training too. And we'd go do knife drills in at night in the, in the room or, you know, try different things, um, on our off time. And for me, just training, training is like my, I guess my release. Like sometimes I'll go do stuff. Um, I used to like to mountain bike a lot, but I'm not, Central Florida isn't really the it's best. Kind of flat. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of flat and it's really sandy. Yeah. So occasionally we'll go like stand up paddleboarding or whatever, but usually I'll just go, I'll go work out. And, you know, being out here in the woods, this is like kind of like my personal time just to go train. Brilliant. All right. Well, then you mentioned about the Full Spectrum Warrior website. Where else online can people find you, follow you, that kind of thing? So we have, uh, we have a YouTube channel. You can look up uh, Full Spectrum Warrior or Rich Graham on YouTube. And then um, Instagram is kind of like the daily. That kind of has the most just seeing all the stuff we're doing. And that's Full Spectrum Warrior USA on Instagram. And then uh, we also have a podcast, the Full Spectrum Warriors podcast. Um, I've had it for about a year now. And um, yeah, that's, that's that's the main stuff. You know, again, fullspectrumwarriors.com has links to all that. And then, you know, we didn't really get into the dog stuff today, but the nonprofit that we have is Homefront Canine Project and uh, and that does service dogs for special forces families. Beautiful. Well, just tell me about that quickly before we, we close up. So so what was the demand and, and how were you able to fill that? With Homefront Canine, I just had an... Um, I'd done, we're not going to get into the whole dog thing just for the time's sake, but I had been working dogs since I got out of the military. And one of the things that I found was there's a lot of veterans who had a great experience having a service dog. The problem is a lot of these guys got out and by the time they got out, they'd already destroyed their marriage. They'd lost contact with their kids and they had all these crumbled relationships, right? So you can't have a service dog while you're still active duty because when you leave to go on a trip, who's watching your dog? You can't just bring your dog around with you everywhere. So my idea with Homefront Canine Project was what if we could train up a service dog and maybe if, if the need is there slash home protection, family protection dog, and put that in with a family that was still intact but maybe was on the rocks and put that dog in while the while the operator is still on active duty and start that healing process with the dog sooner than waiting till they did 12, 15, 20 years and then trying to do like uh, on the tail end like, hey, well, we're going to try to fix this with a dog. And it's like the dog doesn't, like the dog helps, but like the it's dog's not more important pill. than your family. Yeah, You know what I mean? So what we've been doing with this here is if one of the things that I've learned with working with the dogs is the dogs really shows how good or how crappy your communication is. There's a lot you learn about yourself working with the dogs. And I can look at someone who's a handler and look at their dog, see what their dog's doing. And I can know a lot about what's happening in that person's life based on watching how their dog moves, responds to things, listens or doesn't listen. You know what I mean? So, um, like I'll have people who had a dog that had always been nice 
And now all of a sudden the dog's getting really nippy. And they're asking me like, hey, dude, this dog's like getting really nippy all of a sudden. And I'll, I'll have to ask. I'm like, hey, man, I don't need to pry, but how are things How are things at home? You know what I mean? How are, I look at pictures of their kids and their kids got like blue hair. Dog, kids got blue hair and their dog's biting when the dog used to not bite. And I'm like, what's going on with you and your wife? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's been a little bit. I'm like, are you fighting at home? You know what I mean? Because your kid doesn't know what to do watching you and your wife fight in home. Your kid doesn't know what to do, so it lashes out through different types of music, through that punk rock hairstyle, whatever, and your dog communicates with its mouth. So all of a sudden, your pillows are all chewed up, your car's chewed up, the dog never did this, and all of a sudden, now the dog's chewing on things, and it's a stress reliever for the dog. The dog doesn't know what to do. When there's that tension in the home, the dog's stressed out, and it's lashing out in in a certain way. So with this, what we've been able to do is basically have the guys that come back from deployment, we bring them down here to the ranch, they have their dog, we do drills with the dog, and instead of me having people sit on a couch and try to act like a counselor, I'm focused on the dog, or our dog trainers are focused on the dog. But indirectly, the things that we're teaching them to build that relationship with the dog, these similar communication concepts transition over to what needs to be happening in their household. And people start connecting the dots without you saying, hey, dude, you're saying it through the dog. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're acknowledging what's happening because you can't hide. If you don't want the dog to do this, then you guys need to do X, Y, and Z. And, but it also gives them a good opportunity to start communing together, communicating again together as a family with, with something to communicate around. So here's this dog. We have this challenge. We want you to try to get over these hurdles with the dog, do this, this, and this. And now you guys have to talk with each other and work together as a team to do this one training drill with the dog. And the kids have a blast with it. They're, they're doing good. And, it, and, um, and again, it's just been, uh, it's had a really good turnout so far. We've, we actually just delivered two dogs in the last three, three dogs in the last month. That's an amazing program. And it makes so much sense. I had a, a horseman, Buck Branneman, on who has a very traumatic early childhood. But again, I mean, the, the horse is another animal that responds the way, you know, to the energy of the person. Exactly. So, a, as you said, it holds a mirror up to, to you. So, love it. And is there a separate place for people to find out about that program? Or is that tied yeah, into the... So, that charity's website is homefrontcanine dot org and canine is the letter or the uh, letter number so homefront org. well rich i want to say thank you so much um it's been an amazing conversation thank you both for having me in your home um i love these long form conversations they go all over the place like yeah. a damn octopus but you know we get we get to some real yeah, the, the root of some issues and some places that are uncomfortable for people to talk about or listen to, but that's exactly how it should be. So I just want to thank you so much. I think I think it's been almost three hours we've been chatting now. So <laughs> thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, for sure. We appreciate the opportunity. 